Hey, Joel. Here we are. And this is Joel Baco that I'm speaking with. And let me tell you, the pleasure is all mine, Joel. Well, it's shared tonight. <laughs> all right. Well, if you insist. <laughs> and I'm looking at my notes and I was just deciding how I wanted to start. First, I'll say that you excel in a lot of ways, in my opinion, uh, you know, within the within the Twin Peaks stuff, but also in, in other realms as well. And I wrote down two things in particular. I think you are both fastidious in your detail and your attention to detail and also very inventive in your thinking. So those are sort of maybe two different sides of a coin, but I think you run the gamut. And, and in my opinion, that's quite the compliment. So how do you feel about that? Does that sound accurate? Yeah, thank you for that. I, I think I do. Um, I find that I, I try to like explore, I guess, I don't know, could we call that left brain, left brain, right brain to be mm. reductive about it? Yeah, I feel like I kind of, um, I guess, encourage myself, if that's the right word, to uh, explore both of those facets in the in my work. I, I, I put it this way, I feel compelled to explore both. So like for Twin Peaks, for example, it's like, uh, I, I really like creating things, particularly with the videos where it has like its own sense of of rhythm and, and kind of conveying the spirit of the work and maybe bringing other things into it as well. Uh, but then I also like to go nitty gritty into the details and figure out who's who's got the most screen time and things like that, mm -hmm. playing with the sort of more trivial aspects of it. I, I definitely have both of those uh, both of those pulling me in, in those directions. And I fortunately, I'm able <laughs> to do both. Yeah, and it seems to me that sort of one kind of supports the other or one enables the other, or at minimum, the the real nitty-gritty detail stuff opens up, I think, some of the creative analysis stuff. But that's just my opinion. But I would like to start off with a, a semi-professional question. So <clears throat> I usually like do this approach where I just ask anything I want, and I'm interested in what I want to learn about. But for the first time, there are some people who said they were interested in listening to this. So now I actually have a little bit of, of an audience in mind. And I don't think that'll change anything. But these are my sections of questions for you. So my question for you is, how would you order these if you wanted to have like the best product that we produce? Mm. So <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have questions about you and your work and like your process, how you operate, basically. I have a bunch of questions that are more personal about you, maybe some background stuff, a little bit of your history or bio. Nothing nothing too personal, I don't think. I have questions about Twin Peaks. I have questions about analyzing Twin Peaks and then just questions about analysis in general. So if you had to predict what the listeners would want to hear at the beginning, uh, what do you think we should start with? Um... That's a good question. Um, ooh, I would say probably maybe I think you kind of listed them in an order that made some sense to me, like maybe starting with the process. Cool. If that's all okay, right, but we don't have to. I mean, by no means. No, that's that's how I wanted to operate. And, and I was going to stick with that. OK, <laughs> like good. The, the, no matter what you said. Good, good. And no matter what people really wanted to hear first, because this is what I'm most interested in personally. But we'll get into the fun Twin Peaks stuff in a bit. But um, you sometimes post on on Twitter and maybe elsewhere like screenshots of of like a calendar 
that you create for yourself. I'm not sure if it's a, a spreadsheet <laughs> oh or whatnot. Oh my god, a but very like very some... out of date one and over okay. idealistic, unfortunately. Yeah, sometimes it looks a little nutty in a good way. Mm, yeah, um, but do you do, do you, uh, really like calendar out your life or your project based life? Um, yes, is that, is that pretty much how you operate? Just talk about that a bit. If you don't mind. I would say I structure it very very heavily. Um, even my daily life, I have like, mm. I figured out about five years ago that I really, to be productive in all different ways, I really needed a better, like, like I needed to get up in the morning and feel like I was stepping onto a conveyor belt. Mm. It would take me from thing to thing in a certain priority order. If I needed this thing that would move to the front, like it would almost be automatic in my mind. Um, and there'd be penalties and stuff for not, you know, and, and I found for me, um, I think it's worked pretty well, uh, in terms of like a, a real calendar for the online work, um, you know, that's reflective of the same kind of approach, but it's predictive or it's, I don't know if predictive is the right word. It, it, it's prescriptive, maybe like it's, it's, you know, instead of saying, the, the other, the, the daily schedule is kind of reactive. It's like, you know, if you're in this situation, mm -hmm. this takes first priority, step into this, when you have time, do this, et cetera, which is a little more realistic. Um, the calendar that you're referring to, which was made about a year ago is already mm -hmm. wrong in almost every respect. <laughs> I just, for the light, and I've been doing this for 15 years of my online activity. I simply cannot, um, I, I, everything takes longer or takes a different direction than I think. And uh, maybe because I try to order it in some way, maybe that does make it a little more, a little less chaotic or something than it would be, but it certainly never, never ever seems to come to fruition <laughs> the way that I'm, I'm trying to make it happen. Um, so like that one for just to give viewers an example of what we're talking about. So it's probably sounds kind of vague. Like I made a calendar of like, okay, you know, I don't remember. I'm, it was something like July through September. I'm finishing this podcast. That'll come out once a week. Then I'm going to start my character series at this point, And that's going to go till then. And then I'll be done with it. And then I'll be finally ready to do my journey through Twin Peaks videos again. And that, that type of thing. Cause in the past, I, mm. you know, I, I've done this sort of thing numerous times and I keep thinking that I'm sort of clarifying and making it like, okay, this time I figured out what works and blah, blah, blah. But the problem is it's the deadlines always at the, the thing, the, the time I want to finish it by, or the way, you know, that that's always at the forefront. And so when that's the case, just practical advice to everyone, you're probably not going to, chances are you're not going to succeed if, if you set it with the goal in mind if you set it more with the process in mind i just can't do that for various reasons but if you set it i think with the process in mind of like first i do this thing when that's done i do the next thing then you have like an orderly process that takes as long as it takes if you try to tell yourself you're going to get things done in a certain time i don't know it's it's a risky business yeah, would you would you say maybe you're more systems than goals, or you're more process than specific goals? No, I'm they... I'm more goals. They just don't work. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you uh, does the do the pros outweigh the cons? By you you know you overshoot, or maybe you maybe you maybe you get a little over ambitious, perhaps. Um, 
oh and yeah and then it works out how it works out you know new things open up sure. new ideas um having done this for so many years do would you say the pros outweigh the cons or is this are the difficulties something that is still trouble you I would say, okay, I'm going to take that question more as not so much about how I pursue the different projects mm -hmm. as that I decided to pursue many different projects. I would say, I mean, in a sense, I'm glad I did. If, if I can get to where I want to get in the end, then it was worth it, even if it was not the, you know, even if I put way too much on my plate. Um, I like looking back and seeing a diversity of work and seeing, and really, like I, I organize my site at this point because it's no longer really a blog format, even though its underlying structure is a blog template. Mm -hmm. um, but like, you know, I guide people to pages that are not blog pages. So I, I kind of encourage them to navigate it a different way. But, you know, you can scroll back to a certain degree. And I organize it as an archive by like chapters of different like errors. And I like the fact that they all have their own little character like this three or four month period is very distinguishable from a five or six month period that came later. You know, ultimately what matters is the work. If somebody just pumps out a review of a movie every week for years on end and it's good, great. Like, mm -hmm. you know, but, but I do have a soft spot for like um, a terrain, <laughs> you know, where you feel like you're going up a hill and coming down and walking along a stream and this and that. And my work definitely has that because it'll be, you know, one year, there'll be more video essays and this type of thing. A few years later, I'll be covering this TV show and that will be now. I don't know how that works for readers, viewers, listeners, because I think a lot mm. of people come and go. Certainly they do on Patreon. It's a bit of a revolving door because people come for one thing and then maybe yeah. are lose interest or aren't as interested in something else I'm interested in. So it, it's kind of a, it's like a, a, you know, B-A-Z-A-A-R, bizarre type of uh, mm -hmm. approach where you kind of come and maybe you can find what interests you. Maybe you'll find something that, uh, that uh, you know, you didn't think would interest you, but but something else I did did and that led you to this other thing. So that's kind of my hope. I think mostly people just come for what it is, what, what they want to see. And, and certainly having Twin Peaks for the past almost 10 years has... Uh, made that even more the approach where people are coming specifically because they want to hear what I have to say about that particular show, which fortunately can provide years and years and years of content. <laughs> Indeed. So you were doing things before Twin Peaks, yes, um, on your channel or on your site? Yeah. So the, You've the, been at just this to a give while. you a, a brief history, basically in 2008, I started a blog, a movie blog called The Dancing Image. Coincidentally, mm -hmm. I saw Twin Peaks for the first time that month that I started the blog. Oh, wow. And so I actually wrote about it pretty early on the site. Um, I did an episode guide in 2008. And then I moved on to other things, you know, a few Lynch films as well. But mostly the first five and a half years, Twin Peaks was w something I focused on at one point, And it was part of hundreds and hundreds of different posts about movies and all of that. Um, 2014, I, I got back into the show. And that was the year that ended up with me making the Journey Through Twin Peaks videos, which are definitely by far the most popular thing that I've ever done. And uh, that became like a, both a passion thing and also something I knew would draw people mm -hmm. to the site and would keep up for that reason. So ever since then, it's been at the center. But even even so, like I've always been doing other things I've had. I don't. I think the only year 
I think 2014 from like September to like January 2015, it was all Twin Peaks. Um, other than that, uh, well, and I guess summer of 2017 when the return was on, there was like a, you know, from from when that aired to a few months later, all Twin Peaks. Other than that, there's uh, there's always something else going on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whether it be on Patreon, me reviewing movies every month, um, relating movies to Twin Peaks, maybe, or having other series going, other shows that I'm covering and things like that. So it's almost never just been Twin Peaks that I'm putting out. Do you, uh, well, I have two questions. Um, can you briefly summarize your various Twin Peaks projects? Because you have a lot of different things that you do. And also my other side question is, do you have a boss? Are you your own boss? Uh, would you like to take that in some metaphorical way? So those are my two questions. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm my own boss as far as uh, there's no hidden shadow master telling me what to do with Twin Peaks. Um, but I guess I'm both a tough boss and maybe an ineffective one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure you say I, so. I, ye- I yell a lot at my employee, which is myself, but uh, <laughs> don't seem to have much bark behind the bite to get things done in a different way. So <laughs> nonetheless, much gets done. Uh, yeah, just yeah. never, never quite, um, you know, on the on the timeline i'm hoping for so yeah the the three big ones right now and i would say overall these are the three big ones and have been span have spanned years and years and in every case at this point are the lost in twin peaks podcast which goes episode by episode the journey through twin peaks videos which again are the most popular thing that i've done and and my favorite thing i think in many ways and those go kind of those offer like kind of a eagle eye but also zooming in on various aspects over the whole series the context it was created in um and up you know i've i've done up to uh basically up to season three and the remaining videos are going to focus on uh rather than going by groups of episodes which is how i covered the original series Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to look more at story areas so like dougie in las vegas mr c's wild ride like there'll be a video on each of those a video chapter. So I think there's like seven or eight I have planned. And really, I want to get started on that, I would say in the next few weeks, because I really want those out this year. And um, the other projects haven't, you know, they're still going too, but they're on a back burner. So like, I try to, you know, I have a certain amount of time a day that I would focus on one main thing. And, and hopefully these videos will be that. And the third thing is the Twin Peaks character series, where I do written entries, split up into different categories on uh, all the characters of Twin Peaks ranked by screen time. And I'm up to the top 30 with that, although uh, 45 through 31 are exclusive to patrons right now. So eventually they'd be released to the public. And I should say also the Lost in Twin Peaks podcast, that is complete as far as patrons go. And I thought presenting it to the public would be quite easy because i'm just rearranging the material cutting it into smaller chunks that i put out on like a daily basis and making an illustrated companion where i have screenshots and stuff that go with you know you can sort of scan it as you're listening it's organized by the categories and stuff that i'm talking about on the show um it turned out to be the hardest thing i've ever it's harder mm. much harder than the videos where i'm you where i'm take processing all this footage and creatively arranging it just this simple task of combing through the audio, trying to remove the stuff that annoys me now of like 
whether it be mouth noises or, you know, uh, volume okay. fluctuations or something like that is excruciating. And the and, illustrated and- stuff going through getting the screenshots, like I have a lot of fun doing it, but it's very time consuming. So I've had to pause three or four times just in the public release. Like, again, all the materials there, it's all done. Mm-hmm. It's endless, endless. It drives me a bit nuts, but I, I'm, I really want to finish it. I've got all of season two left to do almost done with season three. I, I skipped ahead to that because I wanted to hit some uh, anniversaries last year for those episodes. But yeah, yeah, I have all of season two left to organize that way. And I just don't know if I'm going to get it done. Um, I really want this to be the last year for a lot of these projects. So we'll see. But yeah, those are the three big ones. And then there's other stuff I've done as well. Yeah. So do, how do you feel about the the ums and whatnot, which is, it's it's like a... <laughs> A major part of my own personal lexicon is mumbling and bumbling. But yeah, I'm, pr- you, I'm probably you really, too ruthless uh, with myself, really to ob- be honest. Yeah, you really object to leaving any of that in? Is, no. Can I, can I convince you otherwise? That, that it, maybe it depends. And I mean, all that stuff is there on Patreon. It's not like mm-hmm. I've gone back. Although I, there have been a few cases where I had to fix something in a Patreon file. And as soon as I opened it back up, it was like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I can't leave this. <laughs> It's like, I mean, I don't even want to put the thought in people's heads because maybe they'll start noticing it more. If it, It's like yeah. mouth smacks and, you know, they, yeah. I, oh, it's just like it drives me nuts. Yeah, yeah it yeah, really yeah. drives me nuts. And it's it's myself more than other people. I can listen to other people do it, but mm-hmm. um, I get a bit ruthless with myself. And I'm sure some people probably find it a little too clipped because it's like, you know, I'm taking out rats and stuff. I don't know. It, it may be a little over obsessive. I think for me, the podcasts are... Um, I think I'm glad people are enjoying them. They're not really my favorite thing that I do, I will say overall. Um, and it's been mostly podcasts for the past few years. So <laughs> favorite thing or not, they've, they've gotten yeah. a lot of attention from me. Um, I think that's how most people engage with media now is through podcasts. And I kind of want to push myself in that direction. I'm glad I did, but uh, overall, I it, I struggle with it a little more than I do with video editing, for example. Yeah, I think video essays, if that's the right term, from what I could tell, and writing seems to be your first loves, but that's just my impression. Have do you um do you tend to operate trying to please yourself or others? Do you get do you get feedback that influences your approach or are you pretty much just kind of doing what you want to do all the time? Like, have you, have, I'm just wondering hold on one second. I'm going to be here for a while, honey. Okay. All right. <laughs> that was Maddie. Hello, Maddie. Um, <laughs> uh, I forget what it was. Uh, so do you get like a lot of feedback that influences or pushes you in certain directions or are you pretty much like, Joel decides what he wants and Joel's going to do what he wants. And you've created a life for yourself where basically you can create things all the time. And that's kind of how you operate. Is it a mix? Yeah. It's like a weird mix of that actually, because like I said, I mean, I'm my own boss. Basically nobody's ever telling me what I have to do. And I've definitely followed my own drummer to somewhat you know, idiosyncratic effect. And I think sometimes frustrating effect. I, I, people have said like, well, gee, I just want you to, I kind of was hoping you'd focus more on this thing. And it's like, mm-hmm. I get that. But then the passion pulls me in one direction and all of that. Now that said, I get certain pieces of advice that have a deep impact on me. 
Um, and they're sort of rare. They're like, it's the feedback, I think is it's sort of few and far between, but it's very significant when it comes. Like I rearranged my entire site because like a, a few people were telling me it was hard to navigate and it sort of became this pursuit where now it's all visual based. Like you click on a directory, shows you a bunch of posters. You can scroll through um, images, you know, for every post that you can click on and kind of, um, you know, I, I like that kind of approach. I, I hope other people can kind of enjoy it, not just functionally, but like, you know, scrolling through and maybe finding mm -hmm. something unexpected there and all of that. But that came about because people were telling me, you know, just when it's a blog with the most recent thing first, and there's text directories that just list everything and you just scroll through a block of text. They were like, I, I, I can't, I find it hard to like find things on your site. So hopefully this way made it a little, maybe it made it too complex. I don't know, but but things like that, things like the lost in the movie's name. Um, at one point, like I said, it was called the dancing image. And then I was branching off into other blogs. And uh, one of them was called lost in the movies. And someone was saying, you're spreading yourself too thin, but like, keep the name lost in the movies. That's great. And that kind of was like, Oh, hmm, interesting. And they said, you know, register your domain name. And I eventually did that and all of mm -hmm. that. So, so along the way, people will sort of direct me in, in a profound way. Um, I do think sort of moment to moment, it's mostly, I, I want to please other people, but my barometer for that is myself, which isn't always necessarily, you know, I have kind of my own unique tastes and interests. So a lot of times what I would want to look at, which is ultimately what I'm doing, it's like, yes, it's for myself, but not, not really myself as a creator so much as myself as a, as a spectator or a, a viewer or whatever, like, if I'm creating something, it's like, gee, if I was in the audience for this, I think that I would really want to see this. And so I do that. And and whether that clicks with other people is sort of hit and miss, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. If, uh, if somebody, well, I guess I have two questions. And the first one is like, like, do a lot of people know to, because I don't know the answer to this. Do like a lot of people like know your work, know who you are and, and amongst the people who do, are they like, are they like cool people? <laughs> and and secondly, um, if somebody really wanted to look for the, some of the best that you have to offer, according to your own opinion, what, or maybe just like a collection of some of your best stuff or like a diverse array, yeah. perhaps, where would you send them? I mean, the answer to the first question in most terms would be definitely not, but I guess, hmm. you know, it's relative. Like I said, the People seem to really like the Twin Peaks videos. They got for me what was especially the original ones before, I think partly before YouTube kind of messed with its algorithm the way it used to work. I, I think that's part of it, but also probably because the return aired and passed and the fever kind of broke and less people are looking mm. for Twin Peaks content. But that first batch of videos got decent views for me. Now for me, that's tens of thousands of views in a few cases. I think maybe just the seven facts about Firewalk Me video like 200 something thousand hmm. but there are people on youtube who go on and they just like hit record and they're sitting there in their hoodie or whatever and they're like <laughs> yeah. they sneeze or something and they get 10 million views that day so i mean no i'm i'm like a not even a speck in that pond um so like i said so i'm happy with what i've who i've how i've been able to reach people at least with some of the stuff i think in and and those are the exceptions as well so like normally it's like maybe a few hundred people will read or listen to something I put up. And even that kind of 
impresses me. I'm like, Oh, that, mm-hmm. where did these people come from? Cause I'm not really like on Facebook sharing it with relatives and stuff. Like it, right, it yeah. seems to be kind of random people who come across it. And I like, I like the idea that somebody's sort of wandering in the wilderness of the internet and they'll, they'll stumble across my stuff and be like, Oh, this is cool. Like that sense mm-hmm. of discovery, like finding something in an old record store or something, you know, but I don't really know. I'm not, I, I have no sense of my audience in that sense. I, I do from like, communicating with individual people especially on patreon Mm. Um, but yeah it's it's uh so so yeah it's all relative but no i mean by most any standards i am not i i don't have much of an audience um but then in terms of uh where people can find stuff there's actually a page called the top post page it has i think maybe 60 posts it goes through every there's a video category a podcast category a written category an essay category an image category so like you can scroll through like that and out of like you know well over 1500 probably close to 2000 posts um and post i use that term but like that could be anything from a status update that's like a paragraph long to something that's like hours of video content that i just happen to put up at once so that's you know but but of all of that material I organized what to what what for me feels like the highlights of it. And that's good because some of it's very popular stuff. Some of it's stuff that like got really overlooked, but I'm really proud of. It's it's usually, I will say the common thread through most of them is um there are a few that are just sort of like essays I wrote about a, mm-hmm. a, a film that I'm like, oh, this one is something clicked with this. But a lot of times it's like something that has kind of a unique approach. It's like, oh, I I thought of an interesting way into this that is fun for me. So I highlight that stuff. Um, but yeah, if you, if you, um, it's not on the front page of my site exactly, but if you click on more to explore on that button, uh, it's one of the first things that pops up on that page. So, yeah. And it, it's interesting to say, uh, to hear somebody say, you know, I, these are some essays I wrote about movies because I'm a teacher, as you know, I'm an English teacher. And oftentimes essays are things that people think, <laughs> or things you have to do when they're assigned to you yeah so are you are you kind of assigning yourself little projects or are you writing essays because you enjoy doing that and you've managed to create a, a life that allows you to do things like that um there's always some pressure involved in doing work for the site like there's stuff some stuff that just sort of flies and is like a pure pleasure a lot of the stuff it's like I want to create content type of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's like a mix of like feeling really compelled and sort of pushing myself a little to do it. But I think I just, in 2008, I needed an outlet. I needed something to, it really was more about like expressing um, thoughts and ideas and, and all of that and feelings and impressions Um out there and then it was nice when people came and and looked at it and i will say that's you know i talked about different eras in the work it was a a totally different world when i joined back in 2008 there was actually something that people called the movie blogosphere and everybody read each other's blogs and commented on each other's blogs i hardly get any comments ever now almost never months and months and months will go by without anybody commenting on a piece, which, well, I mean, they do on YouTube. So there is that, but just the energy has shifted um, from individual blogs to like social media websites. And I guess YouTube kind of straddles that in an interesting way. 
like it still has some yeah. of that spirit of like independent people creating stuff and putting it up but like yeah it's it's uh that's where the action is and so like that that was a big change that sort of happened slowly i would say in the early 2010s where it was like one year somebody would come up with you know they called them memes back then they weren't like image posts with text on them a meme was like if you were like what are 12 movies you'd want to see at this or at this if you could program a theater or something and all Mm. these different blogs would respond and they'd all link to each other and it was very lively and viral and it seems like one year that was hopping and a year or two later it just was not there anymore now i'll go back and i'll look at my blog roll of all those different blogs i'll scroll through and so many of them are just dead Mm. Um, like literally sometimes they link like it's a spam site like they didn't keep up the domain or whatever a lot of them haven't posted since like 2015 2013 or whatever so a little bit like a graveyard but it it was that was kind of my the world i entered into and then i think luckily twin peaks came along at a point to create a different community and sense of interaction Uh, without that i don't know um, what direction i would have gone in might have just withered in a sense Hmm. That's interesting. Um, so there was a bit of a heyday there. Was there ever a sort of heyday of sorts in the Twin Peaks space, wherever that might have been, blogs yeah. or elsewhere? I mean, I'm sure there certainly was in 1990. I wasn't around for that. Yeah. But no, definitely 2014 to 2017 was the golden age or the silver age or whatever of Twin <laughs> Peaks. And I think building up to that as well, I think from the time they released the gold box in 20, 2007, there was just a steady, steady upswing. The Netflix streaming, it was like just in the air. It was in the zeitgeist. And then when they announced, even before they announced the return, when they were like coming out with the missing pieces and stuff and the Blu-ray was on the horizon, there was just like a real excitement around it. And it seemed like it, it seemed like it was back in the mainstream. And I mean, you know, <laughs> In a weird, in a way, the return almost kind of exposed the underside of that. In that, um, you know, after us all hyping and looking forward to it, when once it's out there, it's like yes, there's it has way way more of a presence in the media than it had had for 25 years. But it was still a very, I mean, Game of Thrones was like running circles around it in terms of attention. Yeah. So you know, the, there's a funny meme of like uh, Homer Simpson looking at one TV and everyone in the bar looking in the other direction and they imposed game of Thrones over everyone's head and twin peaks over Homer. So, (laughs) you know, that this was all within a a smaller context, but in a way that almost made it more um, exciting because it was like a smaller group that was like even more devoted. You know, I think a lot of people they'll watch a big show and they'll move on. They don't linger afterwards. Um, so the, the Twin Peaks community, but yeah, that, that, enter, for without a doubt to me, the 2014 to 17 was its cultural moment, you know, that I lived through anyways. Yeah. And I, I came around just a couple of years ago. So have I walked into pretty much like a kind of a downtime? Relatively so, but it doesn't. So if you compare the, the show was on six years ago now, the return. So this is equivalent to 1990, uh, I guess it went off the air in 91, so 97, maybe if you want to say Firewalk, me 98. Uh, Twin Peaks in 97, 98 was nothing like, there yeah. was nowhere near the activity or relevance or availability for that matter 
in 97 or 98 that there is in 2023. So um, partly just because of, you know, the internet keeping things alive in a different way than the nineties would. But also I think because the return was, it was like lightning on a bottle. It was, it was more accepted and received well by the few who watched it. Um, Even though fans had divided reactions on it. um, I think the fact that critics were pretty unanimous in saying, this is great you know, Lynch got applauded at the Cannes Film Festivals that booed and all this stuff. It's like, it was basically a success story. And I think that's left more of a glow than, you know, Firewalk Me did, even though Firewalk Me to me is the best part of Twin Peaks. But yeah. it was just a real sour um, aftertaste left for people after the original series. Yeah, I think, I think earlier you were perhaps a little humble or downplaying the, the amount of work that you have produced about Twin Peaks. I wouldn't and, be humble about that because I've done okay. a lot of work on Twin Peaks. Yeah, I might've been humble about as... how many people have seen it. But... <laughs> okay, good. Because if somebody wanted to just turn to you and your body of work as a resource or thinking about, or, you know, even just researching or considering Twin Peaks from, from many angles, there are many, 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 many words that have been spoken and written um, by you. So after all of that, are you, do you still have pleasure in watching Twin Peaks? Yes, I get pleasure from the series, but it's evolved and it's not the passion of 2014, I think is something different now. It's, it's more of a, you know, I've gone from the, the Andre Gregory character in my dinner with Andre to the uh, Wallace mm. Shawn character at this point, <laughs> you know, I'm enjoying my nice cup of coffee in the morning and, and lingering over familiar sites of Twin Peaks versus like falling into this rabbit hole in this in this kind of euphoric and and overwhelming way because it's a it's mm. a sad story it's dark in many ways but that first year was like something else it was like closer to like a religious experience in a way and since then it's sort of been you know the the what follows after that spiritual birth of religion a lot of sort of ritual building and um Mm. and uh sort of practice and reliving things and all of that which is fine like i'm not i i like that but yes it is different now and uh maybe somewhat artificially i'm i'm trying to bring it to an end this year but like i said there's so much that still needs to be finished if i want these projects to be complete that it's sort of intimidating but um yeah, I, I would like to sort of close off that period, which will be uh, February of 2014 was when I picked up a book of Twin Peaks essays after not having watched the show for years and thought, mm. I guess this will be the next book I read. I, I bought it, you know, to fill a cart on like barnesandnoble.com or something like that. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, this thing's been sitting here, this used book of, of full of secrets. Um, and then that that everything just fell into place from there on. And so that was almost 10 years ago. And I'd like to close it within that period and move on. I mean, honestly, I'd like to move on from kind of film commentary in general and see what I can do with just focusing on certain video ideas, uh, theoretically filmmaking, although in the past mm. I've struggled with that a lot. Like I'll, I'll fill whole notebooks with notes that dance around the idea of a movie, but I can never quite plant the seed. <laughs> so, um, you know, maybe after all the work on Twin Peaks, uh, that'll be a, a sense of narrative will be a little more innate. I don't know, but whether that that's the case, um, 
I have other, like, I, I would like, I think my, if everything go could go as planned, it would be like by the end, of, by really November, you know, in, in October or so, I would finish up these, the three big Twin Peaks projects. I would kind of put a button in the site, say this was a 15 year project as it stands. And then I would keep it alive as something I shared almost without quite tipping my hand that everything I was sharing was old, which I kind of already do in a way. I'd post videos every week or video clips on Twitter every week and and images every day from different posts that I put up over the years. And if you look at the dates, it's like, oh, this is from like 2011 or something. Yeah. But like, I don't like, I'm not like, you know, highlighting that. I'm just like, hey, here's something I watched or something I have to say about this or that. And people kind of take it as, as a, I think, take it as sort of a fresh thing. So I'd like to keep promoting and maybe actually expanding it. Cause right now it's only on Twitter. I had a Tumblr for a while that I, but you know, that's kind of dead. Um, so like, I don't know, like TikTok or, or um, what are the other. Um, You're asking Instagram the wrong or something. Guy. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of stuck in the Twitter ghetto, but like, I, I would like to um, promote it on all these different sites, but not actually be creating new work for it. Now, I don't want to shut off Patreon. You know, that seems kind of unwise. People are there. Mm. They enjoy the the work. They make a monthly donation. So I, I would probably continue work on there and I would actually make it more explicitly contingent on what people want. Um, like I, I think if, if I can get to a good place with these projects, I would sort of take a deep breath and like pull people, send them DMs like, Hey, what are you like? What are you looking for from this? Like, what can I, and kind of tailor it explicitly to like, okay, these are your rewards for the dollar a month or $5 a month each month. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess I would continue because I assume this is what they would want, some sort of film commentary, film, maybe even Twin Peaks commentary over there. But like, it would, you know, it, I wouldn't be putting out new public projects. I'm kind of, I'm already kind of ending some of the feeds, like finding a good spot to kind of conclude various podcast projects and uh, and then I would like to focus my energy, you know, my energy for new work on. Uh, well, one of the ideas is like a generations project. I have no idea if this would work or not. Like it could mm -hmm. completely crumble to dust in my hand. I really don't know. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if it did, because it's a bit nebulous and grandiose at the same time but it's this idea of like looking at different eras through the lens of the generations that were you know alive at that time and what ages they were and then you can kind of map it on like there's a bit of a mathematical grid aspect to it because it's like each generation is exactly 17 years each era would be eight or nine years so you can almost say let's jump in right here and look at where the boomers were in this time and where the millennials were here and you can actually juxtapose side by side they were 26 to 43 and at this exact time you know that type of thing mm -hmm. um, but doing a video form of it i already did a post where i did this with just images um it's sort of just introduces the whole concept and it has like you know an image for each era and tells you how old each generation was at that point yeah. i used actors to illustrate it because it's hard to find pictures of like normal people and know exactly how old they are. So it's like, um, you know, the, the, but, but this post has stuck with me and it really has been hard to shake. And so I thought, 
wouldn't it be interesting to go through YouTube? There's tons of footage on YouTube that you can just pull off of videos, basically just rip off, which especially now with Netflix DVD going away. I mean, that's another end of the era moment of kind of sounding the bell of like, I can't quite do things the way I used to, because that was a major mm. resource for me. But um, anyway, so yeah, the, the this would be like going through and finding interesting footage from a given era, usually that would reflect some kind of generational experience or conflict or growth or whatever. And weaving a kind of journey through Twin Peaks like narrative through that. And okay. I, I would like to go do it backwards, start with the most recent era. Um, maybe even, you know, maybe I would spend years putting this together and um, that, you know, we're, we're currently, according to my, uh, <laughs> my uh, charting of this, we're now at the beginning of the next period, which is 2023 to 2031. It doesn't have a name yet. Nobody knows what it's, you know, I would call the previous one with 2015 to 2022 is MAGA meltdown. I mean, that's kind of a no brainer. That's that was what was going on in society. I think as many other things kind of revolved around the persona of Trump and how people reacted and, and all of that. Um, and then before that, the period 20, 2006 to 2014, I'd call I world, you know, lowercase I like the iPhone, hmm. Um, kind of defined that way. And then millennial crisis, the, the, the late nineties into the turn of the millennium and nine 11 and the war on terror and all that. So like each era, even though it's done almost arbit not arbitrarily, but like just the hammer comes down, like, okay, seven years of past or eight years of past end of era, start a new one, nine, you know, so forth. Um, it's funny how it does actually map on to different periods that have a distinct character. And same thing with the generations. It's like, well, how do you distinguish, you know, at a certain point, somebody born at 1159 is Gen X and the, somebody born at midnight is a millennial. So it gets kind of ridiculous. But just broadly speaking, you can look at these big groups and see kind of patterns that emerge and and things like that. So yeah, my idea is, is to kind of play with that. I, again, I'm not putting too much stock in the sense that that none of this that I'm describing to you right now is pinned down in a way. Mm -hmm. I do take some encouragement from the fact that, um, excuse me, journey through twin peaks had a, a similar Genesis in that, uh, I really, I had this desire to sort of, uh, and keep in mind, this is before season three. And there's a sense that twin peaks is sort of an unruly mess. It doesn't quite cohere. And I wanted to kind of take it all in my arms and show the big picture, the God's eye view of like, yeah, you know what Twin Peaks builds toward, which in my mind is, is Firewalk with me is sort of the culmination of that. And and actually, I've struggled a little bit with how to fit season three into that because to me it all kind of ends up still pointing back to what came before in a way. Um, but I wanted to do that, and initially that was going to be a written thing, and I would say essentially turned into Lost in Twin Peaks in some ways. Um, although Lost in Twin Peaks is very granular. It's it's not taking as much time to look at the sweep the way Journey Through Twin Peaks does. And so I had this idea. And then I also had the idea, I was starting to do video essays again. And I was like, gee, it would be cool to do like little Twin Peaks video essays, like sort of riffs on ideas. And I had three visual ideas that were really driving me. Um, one of them was Laura Palmer, at the at the near the end of firewalk with me getting up from her desk and crying and then cutting into the pilot and just seeing how that would look and actually that's the most recent uh, video clip i put up on twitter 
another one was playing the home, like zooming in on the home video image that we only see on the, mostly only see on the TV and kind of filling the screen and playing mysteries of love. And I thought that would be kind of cool. And then the other one was John Thorne's idea about how the dreams of Deer Meadow, you know, in his theory that uh, if, if that first part of Firewalk with me is Cooper's dream, that it echoes or it's echoed by Laura's dream later in the movie. And I thought, wouldn't that be cool to just have a split screen side by side and show mm. images from both that kind of rhyme in that way. And those were the three ideas. And somehow that, that concept of doing a video exploration of, or, or just like a video kind of playing around with Twin Peaks stuff combined with this sweeping idea of, of kind of, telling the story of Twin Peaks, both the story it tells and the story about it and how it, you know, accidentally came together. And I thought I, I, I kind of played around a little and I was having some trouble in, in Final Cut Pro. And I was just like, I don't think this is, it's, it's too unwieldy for a video essay to do, but I couldn't mm. let it go. And, and so I ended up starting it and it all kind of fell into place. And and that became Journey Through Twin Peaks was like the combination of the visual spark and this, this grand concept, this more grand conceptual idea. So I know that I can go from something seeing, seeming kind of vague and nebulous. Now, a big difference is with that, I had the core you know, footage of Twin Peaks to work mm -hmm. off of, to bounce off of. With this idea, it's more it's more unmoored. It's like go out and see what I can find and um, coalesce it into something. But anyways, that was a long winding uh, uh, thought process. <laughs> now, what do you see on my screen right now? I see Journey Through Twin Peaks um, the playlist. Yeah, and I want to watch just a minute or two. Sounds like you've been snacking on some of the local mushrooms. There's the old website. Yep, still the same one, but it'll redirect yeah. you to bostonmovies.com. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, it's, it's interesting because that trailer was created after all of the videos were complete. So, mm -hmm. you know, as I was doing it, I had a plan going in and I had an outline, but of course things get expanded, things get added. So um, it's a good thing I waited till the end to make a trailer because it probably, you know, would have shown stuff that, that ended up being a little different. But um, like even sequences that illustrate certain questions or stuff are like sequences I cut for the video for other purposes. So like when it's saying who killed Laura Palmer or whatever, and it's showing all the characters that's actually a montage that I cut when I'm talking about the town in chapter one and saying everyone has secrets and this and that. And it's like cut to the rhythm of my narration or whatever. So it's, or actually it's not, no, it's cut. I think it's exact. It's like a second each or something like that. Um, so, you know, it has another reason for being cut that way, but it's kind of dropped into the trailer. So like nothing, Mm -hmm. The trailer is like an assembly of sequences that themselves were cut for other things. If you had to name the genre of what we just watched, would you say that is a uh, a film trailer, an essay trailer, a uh, a video essay? Is there a, a name you would give it? 
Yeah, I just I'd call it a, a video essay trailer because it's or okay. a trailer for a video essay. Um, I don't think it's meant to really function on its own, other than maybe you know, pleasurable to see the images of Twin Peaks and hear the music and all that. But in terms of what it's conveying, it's it's leading you towards the rest of the series. When you create something like this, or perhaps even some of the videos in that series, are you are you kind of following a template that like a commonly used approach? Is there sort of like a standard approach? Or are you you kind of making it up as you go? Or you do you have like a certain approach that is kind of more your style? The even just the one we just watched is that kind of a Baco esque, so to speak, or is that sort of more like standard format? Because I don't know. Well, it's because it's a video series, it makes sense to have a trailer. I think I don't honestly, I'm not I'd have to think about how many or what examples of video essay series um, are out there because mm. it's not really that many now that I think about it. I haven't really thought about it in that way before because I mean, initially, this was going to be a 20 minute video essay for all oh. of Twin Peaks. It became a four-hour video series that I had to split into different parts. So it's like... Okay, so, so that right there tells us something about you. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of an example <laughs> of what I was talking about before. Yeah. Um, everything is always ballooning. But um, yeah, I mean, this is actually interesting to think about. So... I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not... I'd have to like kind of look into it and and also figure out is this something i saw or just was kind of drawing from a from a common thing because certainly in terms of like specific video essay making um i wasn't like a huge watcher of video essays but i'd certainly seen some and i was familiar with like kevin b lee for example who basically mm -hmm. invented the form and really fascinated by what he was doing so some of that was like internalized and then would express itself in there. I don't know that I was like consciously like here is a template I'm following so much as just having a general, like, um, like I said, like I, I sort of digested a sense of how these things could be made and then instinctively just sort of work with that, those parameters. I think it's like that with any kind of uh, form, you know, mm. we, especially if it's something that really clicks with us and this is interesting for you because you're actually grammar your you your job is to be very conscious of these things that people yeah. often take for granted so yep. you have to kind of engage with it on that level i think in general people usually don't even realize quite how they're operating they're they're like um semi-consciously following like uh, something that makes sense to them but was well, but was assembled over many different experiments and forays and, and everything like that. Yeah, and, and uh, my students right now are in the middle of a, a multi-genre project where they have to basically do a bunch of variations on a theme, so create a bunch of pieces in different genres. And they're supposed to at least research and study the genre to to a degree that they can kind of enter into it consciously or at least effectively yeah. so that's pretty interesting and so you're you, but you're definitely dipping your foot into a stream that's already flowing with the video essay thing yeah i mean at this so i uh 
the video essay form, you know, and obviously there's earlier things like essay films and even documentaries about movies that kind of informed what was possible. Hmm. But um, in terms of the video essay as we know it, and, and I, this might actually be sort of out of date because I'm a little out of touch with this world for probably about five or six years at this point. And I have noticed just casually people use video essays now to refer to like really any kind of online video that is exploring a subject. Mm. Sometimes they'll use that to refer to like sort of talking head stuff. Sometimes they'll use it to refer to like what I was doing here, but they, but with much less of an emphasis on um, using footage from particularly from a movie when for, for many years, at least as I saw it used, video essay was used exclusively to refer to taking footage from a movie or I suppose a TV show, as I did in this case, and usually narrating over it, although there were non-narrated forms of it as well. Mm -hmm. And that was a video essay. So it's kind of interesting to see now that the, the, the term has evolved to the point where it doesn't even need to be about a film or use um, film footage to be talked about as a video essay um, i see so the video essay yeah. was was pretty much born in the context of film analysis what was specifically i think you really can credit it primarily to one person which is kevin b lee in yeah and I, have his, I have his name written down i wanted to ask you about him can can you because i've heard you mention him a number of times including to me as somebody admirable and somebody you personally i think learned from just tell me a little bit about him and you don't have to do the bio, but just like some things that you've been inspired by or learned from, admire, et cetera. So in 2007, he um, basically he was running a website that was called Shooting Down Pictures. It was off of the list. They uh, There's a website called They Shoot Pictures, Don't They, which has like aggregated all the critical reviews and top 10 or, or top 10 lists and things like that to determine what are the most acclaimed films of all time. And so they had a list of the thousand most acclaimed films. And he had a project as like, I think at this time, like a 30 year old cinephile kind of um, bored with his job and finding, trying to find passion and other things. He was like um, going through all of these films, the ones that he hadn't seen and watching them for the first time. And at a certain point, it was like, it, it wasn't enough for him to just write about it. He was like, you know, I'm online. YouTube had just come in like maybe months before. Okay. It was brand new. And he was like, I need to show clips from what I'm talking about. So he would assemble the clips and show them in the midst of the blog post. And then, and you know, hopefully I'm representing this accurately, but I believe the next mm -hmm. step was like, well, why just have the text and then stop for a video? I mean, I, if it's, it's, it's almost be like a, a film commentary where you're talking on the soundtrack and talking about things, but but because you can manipulate this because you have editing software on your computer, you have mm -hmm. YouTube to upload it to, you have DVD ripping technology that you can pull the footage off of the film. Why not uh, actually assemble the clips in a way that sort of benefits your argument or, or what you're trying to point out about the film? And that yeah. to me at that time was, uh, you know, I think around then 2007, 2008, I sort of saw these these first ones that he had made and it was like there was something revelatory it sounds probably really obvious in retrospect and especially to somebody listening to this who's like 20 or something they've just grown up with this being a thing there but yeah. to be like wow you can take 
you can grab, you can like assume control of the images in a movie and order them in a way that you want to order them in. And this also, I think this part of it, the aesthetic part grows out of a long tradition of like, they would do this particularly with anime. Um, I can't remember what the term is called, but they would basically assemble clips from favorite animes and often make some sort of point through the montage, like often about like characters and how they really felt about something. Like they'd cut together all these reaction shots and stuff. So there was like, you know, this was going back to the nineties, people doing VHS decks to this. So, so there was that kind of fan history. There was a critical history of, I think DVD commentaries were kind of the closest analog to this. And he really brought them all together in this way and started using it for this project. And then other people got into it. They started doing it. It became like this communal thing. And um, eventually websites were launched that were kind of primarily focused on this and, and he was at once like a pioneer of the form, a master of the form and a, like meta commentator upon it. Like he could see its okay. limitations and its uh, its potential uh, in a way that usually is reserved for people who aren't doing the thing. They're standing yeah. to the side as a critic. He was like critic and creator all at <clears> once, <throat> um, which makes sense because it's a form that combines criticism and mm -hmm. creativity. Um, but yeah, I would point people, you know, I have... Um, uh, uh interviews with him from like 2015 um where we talk about some of these bigger themes of video essays and stuff that uh and there's lots of examples in there of, of people's video essays including his um so yeah it's it's it, he's he's a fascinating figure and he has sort of moved into academia i think exclusively more or less like again i've fallen kind of out of touch with the video essay world uh for mm -hmm. a while he was the editor of fandor where i would uh sometimes publish video essays so i had a lot of communication with him through that and uh then when that all fell apart it seemed like he was already um pursuing very advanced studies and i think he's a professor now in germany i i don't that was yeah. the last i kind of was following that was where he was doing and so he he's really i think teaching audio visual um essays as like a, a kind of a form unto itself at this point but yeah anyways there's another long answer yeah there. that's cool no i appreciate that long answer and as a very brief side note um i don't know a lot about fandor but i do know that my wife and i watched one of your fandor videos on a back to the future very cool oh yeah that was a fun one yeah, yeah that's like that was funny because i never could figure out the secret sauce for going viral like there were videos on there on fandor that got millions of views they hit in mm. fact he, kevin b lee has a great story where they hired him to make video essays about their catalog and they had a lot of obscure indie foreign films that weren't going to get a lot of views so he was sort of diligently making these videos about those and they're like man this this isn't like it's not going anywhere. People aren't clicking on these. And it's like, well, you know, this is your library. This is, and they said, well, do something more popular. And like, okay. So I thought, well, okay, well, let's go for the rafters on this. I'll do a video on Spielberg. So he did this whole video called the Spielberg face, where it's like shots of the characters staring up in awe. And this essay that he wrote uh, describing, you know, what this, this particular shot was. So he uploads this to Fandor and 
an hour later, they call him into the office. They say, Kevin, I'm sorry. <laughs> We've been thinking about this for a while. We got to let you go. This isn't working out. Like they hired him full time to be doing this. And they're like, it's just not happening. And he was devastated and he went home or he went out to lunch or whatever. And suddenly his phone started blowing up and they called him back in the office. Like, Oh my God, what happened? The Spielberg face had gone viral and gotten like 2 million views and like four hours or something like oh, that yeah so suddenly they brought him back and he was there for another five years but um yeah so so there were videos on there and there were other people who were like masters of it like just something about their style their touch would instantly um whether it was people on facebook scrolling through and just stopping like oh i gotta watch this i never figured it out like the most mm. you know i think the back to the future is probably one of the ones that got more actually there were ones that got even more views than that and like sort of almost accidentally, like the ones that I didn't think would, um, but it would be maybe in the tens of thousands at most, like they just, it, it's something didn't quite um, transit. So I don't know that they ever got their money's worth because they paid pretty well <laughs> for a video. Mm. Um, they paid, yeah. decently, I thought at the time, but uh, I, I always thought, I thought, I don't know how this model is going to work because where are they making money from? I mean, that's so true with all of this online tech stuff. So I never looked, I think there were people who were kind of shocked when it all fell apart and actually they really got screwed because um, they they didn't get paid for their last few videos. Like the company just mm. literally dissolved into air. And wow. uh, I was not surprised in, that it ultimately went that way. Cause I just was like, how is this a business? I don't know. I mean, I'm glad to take the money and do the work and I'm, you know, I'm earning it in the sense that I'm, you know, creating things I thought were pretty good and all that. But in terms of generating revenue for them, I, I don't understand what the equation was there. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's something I know zero about like basically how people create uh, art or content for lack of a better word <laughs> on the internet. That's enjoyable and uh, get paid for it. I don't know much about that, but yeah, that was my you... only, that was my only brush with that. And it was very hmm. much on the periphery. <laughs> Do you ever do um any like uh what's the word I'm looking for like for hire stuff like freelance stuff? The last thing I did I think was 2017 where um someone very nicely uh put me in touch with like a publisher of uh, some sort of journal and I wrote an article about Mark Frost and Twin Peaks and it was like you know 75 bucks or something. I I don't quote mm. me on that maybe that maybe it was more but it was you know a small amount but it was sort of a professional, um, could you write about this subject? And I did that and that was nice, but that was it. That was the, that, that was the last time I had any sort of, um, you know, other than Patreon, other than being paid directly by the people who were looking for it. That's yeah. sort of my only professional uh, experience yeah. of the last five years, if you could it's, call it that. Yeah. It's always interesting to, uh, to think about how people could, because, you know, you have such a, I would say you have a pretty significant skill set, you know, and then how, how these skill sets could travel throughout the world. Uh, there's there's so much I don't know about. Um, yeah, one, thing that, <laughs> <laughs> one thing that uh, Kevin Beely said that matches one of the questions I had here was um, how he talked about both like the costs and affordances, like the highs and lows of the video essay genre. And my question for you was, do you think this, genre will have a significant historical legacy do you, what do you think the legacy will be looking backwards do you think it what, what do you think it will be known for or will it sort of fizzle away yeah i mean like i said it's hard 
for me to really get a, a sense of it now because I've just I don't I hardly ever watch any of them and actually I've made a point not to watch the Twin Peaks ones until I'm done with Journey Through Twin Peaks which is mm. a never-ending goalpost that keeps shifting but um I, I've I, there's some I, I'm like I'm really curious to see like I love um Jer- Jeremiah's uh, commentary and stuff that I've heard him give and I get the sense like I'm going to really enjoy those videos when I see them, but I've sort of held off, mm. certainly held off on the big, um, the one that went mega viral. Yeah. Again, something I skills, I just, I can't, I mean, I get in his case how it did. I'm talking about the, um, uh, what's his name? Yeah. The twin perfect. One. Twin perfect. Yeah. 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 Where it's like, you put the big caption, I've figured out twin peaks or something. And it's like, you know, if you're willing to piss a bunch of people off, you you'll you can you can go viral so like i, I kind of get it in a vague sense but i don't really you know know how to totally make that work for me but um yeah so like i haven't watched that one yet either and and that but just in general i haven't really i think since the fandor thing ended and i kind of got sucked into twin peaks and patreon consuming most of my energy and and you know i guess arguing about politics on Twitter or whatever. But yeah. It's like, like I, I basically stopped reading books in 2016, you know, like some around that time, just my consumption and engagement patterns shifted. Um, I think in a mostly productive manner. I mean, I did my workload just exploded after that in terms of what I was throwing myself into and, and publishing. Hmm. Um way more like if i if you were to go through like you know look at my site like an hour a day or something in chronological order i think the part from 2018 to now would be way more it would take way more of your time to look at than the 10 years before that you know just partly because it's podcast they're longer but there was also a lot more stuff being put out and then being re-released in a public forum in a sort of jested way. So anyways, I don't even remember how I went down that particular um, path. We were talking about, um, oh, video essays. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I'm not as familiar with the forum at this point. My guess is they will be of interest in sort of representing this era that I, I feel has, is sort of waning or has waned of like the kind of wild west of the internet where it was Mm. like people had this freedom to kind of experiment with different forms and make things their own. I think that's the big thing is there was like a real empowerment from like the late two thousands to like the mid, maybe even late 2010s where it was like the, you know, the, the mainstream cultural dominance kind of broke down and, everybody was kind of getting in on the game and could publish things and see, I mean, I even remember Twitter 10 years ago, you'd pop into like a celebrity's replies and they'd respond to you, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, it's, it's become, they sort of figured it out in a way and they made it more stratified. And uh, I don't think it's fully that way, but it does feel like we sort of peaked and are on the other side of that peak. And I think video essays, um, from the 2010s anyways, will be an example of that, of people taking this kind of cultural currency and, and putting their own imprint on it. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, have you ever been asked for your autograph? 
no. <laughs> okay. That's I, I can't even. Yeah, I, I don't even know who would ask, what, what, who would what, who would be asking me for it. I guess in this scenario, like a, not a probably a Twin Peaks fans like, like what I first through the internet. Like somebody would like, because certainly nobody I would run into in my life <laughs> would even have heard of Twin Peaks for the most part. Let alone know that I'd written anything about it. So. Yeah, fair enough. I could relate. I I actually yeah. have. I have kind of acquired a, a friend, a Twin Peaks oh, friend. Nice. Um, and so now I get text messages and we can text <laughs> each other. Nice, and that's yeah. like, it's like, you know, like world bending. Yeah, isn't it's it? It's like the only person colliding. I knew. Yeah, I, my wife my wife and I watched the whole series and we loved it together. Yeah. But, um, you know, but it's a niche kinda, thing. Yeah, but she's it's funny. It's like, it, you know, it's the perfect size in a way because it's niche, but it's not like, it's not like uber niche, you know, mm-hmm. um, like there's things I'm into yeah, where it's yeah. like almost like depressing to think of like, <laughs> this is so obscure, this thing that I really like, and that's fine in and of itself, but you're losing a sense of like participating in something like a mass culture thing. And Twin Peaks can give you that, even though it is <laughs> really low on the totem pole of like cultural things that get a lot of attention or, or, whatever it's it's like big enough that there's like a thriving fandom and and you can dive in and not feel like you're just over in the corner with like two weirdos you know talking amongst yourselves it's like it's big enough and small enough at the same time yeah it's big enough where people would recognize it but yeah, small, but small enough, enough where if they're into it, they might recognize you. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, exactly. you're another person. Who's into <laughs> Which yeah, like never, you, like you it would never happen with were... like Marvel or something, you know? Like you'd have to yeah, really climb, and you'd probably have to do so by like slavishly pursuing access to the creators somehow, you know? Yeah, that's true. Well, I, I like I like to exist in little worlds where, um you know, I could, I could actually get responses from the many celebrities within those worlds. Like, yeah, that's true. You know, I contacted you on Twitter, I guess, pretty early on after I joined. And uh, I'm like, oh, wow, this guy wrote me back. That's cool. You know, <laughs> and then basically like, you know, that's flattering, but you, yeah, but all yeah. these different people contacted, you know, contacted me back. And then I'm like, well, you know, th- this is, this yeah. is about the size I could handle. I think of how like the actors and people are very responsive and even Mark Frost, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, David Lynch is sort of on his own cloud, which is appropriate, but um, you know, Frost will like and, and retweet things and people like Amy Shields or um, um, ah, shoot the actor who plays Ray. Yeah. George, George Griffith. Griffith. I was going to say Galloway for some reason. George Griffith, of course. Yeah. Um, like they they're they're like really excited like the actors i think have the same experience we do but like even more heightened because they're on the set and oh my god i'm now a part of this thing yeah, but like yeah. it's this thing they have these long you know for my character series i do an actor bio for every entry mm. and it's funny like you know these people are in sometimes hundreds and hundreds of tv episodes and movies this is just one little blip in their career but it's like coming up for air for some of them you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're just like, oh, this, wow, this is how things can be. It's like they fell sideways into this little universe and they never let go. Like the people who would go to the fest year after year after year. And it was like part of their like identity, you know, they would show up and 
and celebrate with these fans in like a small town. It's like, it's, I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of beautiful. <laughs> it is cool. Um, yeah. So, so one of the people that I've been texting with and really have a great time communicating with online and like, you know, privately as well, his name is Joseph and he goes by worlds and wires on Twitter and I think mm -hmm. elsewhere. And he had a couple questions for you that he wanted to ask. And, and one of them was, do you um did you have any plans to ever make a short film or a long film and i think yeah, you touched, I, I think you touched on that briefly well i actually do have a, one on the site um sort of official part of the lost to the movies canon called class of 2002 which i've also mm -hmm. posted um video clips from on you know mixed in with the video essays that i do every week uh, that was an interesting project because it was um uh, there's a I, you do a whole thing about that so I, i'll try to keep it light but um basically around 2012 i really i just moved to california i really wanted and needed to make something like that's that sort of you know compulsion of like this is the point like i'm in my late 20s like i need to kind of did. And I'd done some like short film projects in the past and stuff, but, but this was something where it was like, okay, I'm here. I like, I need to do this kind of just on my own, however I can do it. We'll work in doing all this other stuff. And um, somebody suggested an idea of like people waiting for a train in the afterlife. And uh, they were like, just take, I, I'm not going to do anything with this. If you can think of some, so I kind of played around with that for a while and I kept writing things and the dialogue wasn't really clicking. And at a certain point I was like, I want to open this with a montage of like, you know, whoever the actors I get to play them of like their images from when they were younger. Cause the idea, again, I don't know. I think I said this, like they're, the characters are dead who are like waiting for the train or whatever, you know, this is like, and I kind of hit on the idea that they were all classmates who had died at different points in the 10 years since their graduation um, mm. from high school. And so I had these characters very early on, like the five characters and who they were, but I couldn't quite figure out how I wanted to tell the story, what was practical to do. Like, was I going to you know, rent a vehicle? Like, a, how was I even going to do this financially? And um, I thought, well, whatever I do, I want to open it with this montage of like their earlier lives and describe who they were up to this point. And as I sort of developed that, I realized like this was the thing I wanted to do. Like the rest of it wasn't as interesting to me. It was like actually using images and telling the story. So I ended up basically getting actors through lacasting.com um who just and i didn't even have to get a sag contract i actually asked about them like is this a thing where it's like well no they were sharing their own personal pictures from their past um and i was using them to illustrate these characters that i'd written so it ended up being this basically mock documentary but very not like a comedic one mm -hmm. uh talking telling the story of these five people who had died and were all sort of circling around this one character who's who's telling the the story and is ends up it's sort of revealed how intimately involved he was with at least one of them and uh and and that became like this 20 minute uh video that in many ways is like a video essay um it's fictional it's a film and actually that was an interesting experience is you know not that many people have watched it it's it doesn't have a lot of views but like people who did some uh, quite a several people said that they thought it was real 
which was a co- interesting. I mean, it was a little horrifying in a way of like, oh my God, mm. like what have I created? What's this Frankenstein monster I've created? But flattering too, that they, because there's a lot of structural conceits to it if you if you look for them. But if you're not looking for them, you probably, like all the characters have a J in their name. There's like okay. playing games with the number 10 and stuff. And there's actually like, they're very loosely patterned on, on um characters from the Gen- book of genesis for the, specifically the jacob hmm. and esau story so there's like sort of all these hidden streams underneath it but it's um telling a fictional story so so yeah so that's my i guess my answer is yes i have done that with that film and that's pretty much there's like one other experimental film i have with like footage from winds wind in the willows and stuff that i did many years earlier and popped onto vimeo and shared on the site but for the most part um that's the only real film that I've featured on there, class of 2002. And earlier you were talking about filling notebook pages with potential ideas. For feature films that I could shoot, like with actors and stuff, like as an actual production. And I just, it, 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 I never quite felt like I had that hook, like, you know, Twin Peaks, a girl washes up on shore, the town grieves and a detective comes to town to solve it. Mm -hmm. Bam everything else can kind of spin around that. You can have a woman who's got the shades that won't open, you know, it's like you have all these other little elements, but there's a core thing there that holds it together. Um, I I just, I I, I would have like a very loose conceptual thing. Like, okay, like here's a, a character who's like a psychologist who is exploring this dream world and it's like a noir film, but the character's a psychologist instead of a detective. And I would have all these, tons of ideas i was building off of like raymond chandler stuff but there was never like the one sentence pitch thing of and here's the central plot engine or the thing i just at somehow it was like always a part of just i feel a larger sort of creative block i have with with coming up with things out of thin air like i'm so reactive um that's why the film commentary stuff has worked so well for me because there's something there to 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 fuel me there's this there's the spark is already there mm-hmm. coming up with the seed to me is just the hardest part and everything else after as challenging as it can be is um you know you're flowing you're you're moving the engine started i, I just getting yeah, that I, engine started is rough i understand completely um my my brother who's probably the funniest person i know he claims that i am one of the funniest person people he knows and no one else would say that about me, <laughs> and you know. But it's just that if I have some sort of person to 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 riff with, mm, yeah, you know, that's a good point. Yeah, and it could just happen. But if I have to sort of create comedy from scratch, it's it's probably not going to happen <laughs> at all. Yeah, so. it's interesting. It's like my I'm a very sort of independent, individualized um creator and that's not to say that i've had i haven't had many great interactions that's talk about john thorne kevin b lee all these people who have fueled things for me but i'm sort of reliant on myself to jumpstart stuff and that ends up working out pretty well for film commentary video essays etc and not great for filmmaking i find but um if it ever does coalesce then that's sort of a good place to be in because now you're not dependent on somebody else's uh you know um you know you you carry around your own equipment with you that you need basically yeah yeah that makes sense i think one of the reasons that joseph asked that was 
I think he just admires your work in general. Um, he's also a filmmaker, sound designer type guy, just gen like general artist. Nice, yeah, yeah. I've type. I've interacted and, with him on Twitter, and and he's yeah, that's uh, cool. I think follows both accounts. And would you say you're an artist? Um, I guess in the sense of like, I can be like I've 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 been an artist. If it's mm -hmm. like a present tense thing, I might get a little like, are you doing, you know, are you doing something artistic right now? It's like, I mean, there's creative aspects, certainly the stuff I'm doing, but because it's like sort of more of a critical component to it, it's a little like, um, you know, what, what does he say in the Big Lebowski? Not a term that I'd self-apply or something like mm -hmm. that. It's like, it, it yeah it, i think it, it can be but like to use it as a as i'm always in that mode i don't know would you say i the, would aspire to be i guess okay would you say the critical work or the essay type work or just a lot of the writing you do in general does that fall under the umbrella of art um I mean, it. I think it. I'm not trying. I'm, I'm not. I think you know, it's I'm on a spectrum. A I think it's on a. I think it's on a spectrum. I mean, there's like you know an art or a craft of writing that a critic mm -hmm. engages in. I also don't even know that I would necessarily call myself a critic in, in that mm -hmm. way either. I, I'm sort of hesitant. Like I've been a critic. I am in critic mode sometimes. Sometimes I'm in critic mode and artist mode at the same time, along with other modes like. But it's hard for me to just put on a hat and say, um, this is this is the thing I am. It feels a little like, I think, but because of the way I do it, it's feel, it would feel a little pretentious for me of like, I'm claiming something that I'm not necessarily like in the world of in the way that people who claim it normally are, maybe. Yeah. Would you, would you identify yourself as like a, a creative type? Yeah, um, definitely. Are you? I think I can use these terms as adjectives. I have a little trouble using them as nouns. I see. Um, speaking of adjective, which of the following are more accurate? Are you unapologetic, purposeful, or fill in the blank? Which would be the best adjective for you? um i'd need a context for it <laughs> okay i would have to like in which situation am i this thing i know? see That's how about it. as how about as joel Baco, the creative type um what's a, a one word or a, yeah I, I, I was wondering words. if you would describe or would you describe yourself as unapologetic or is that not no, a word that not really sits with you? i mean not Maybe in certain situations or contexts, but um, I mean, I'm somebody, one of my major problems in writing that I have to correct for is using uh, hedging my bets. Okay. You know, using uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Qualifiers. You, you know this. Maybe. Qualifiers, exactly. Yeah. I use too many qualifiers. Okay. Um, so no, probably would be incorrect to say unapologetic. <laughs> I'm apologizing for being un considered unapologetic. So provocative? Right. Would you say you're provocative? Would you say you're purposeful? Uh, not, I don't think driven? I'm particularly. I might have, you know, I, I don't. Um, purposeful. Curious. Driven. 
yeah, curious for sure. Um, you know, one thing, I don't know what the word for it would be, but I think a through line with a lot of things I've created is the idea of like um, comparison or juxtaposition, uh, you know, even starting with that idea of like having something to bounce off of with film commentary in general, like to take that another step, I really like having two things to bounce off each other. And that's like a very common theme throughout many different things I've done. Um, like the Twin Peaks Cinema mm. podcast, I guess, would be one of the more obvious examples of that, where it's like it gives me I, I like having. So and even now, lately on on the video clips on Twitter, the ones I've been highlighting have been comparison ones. So like Asphalt Jungle and The Shining or Dial M for Murder and Rare Window, like where they have something in common, mm -hmm. it then lets you really trace out their differences, I think, in a fascinating way. So I, I like that type of dance between elements. I mean, that's one thing I love about Twin Peaks is you have Mark Frost and David Lynch, who I think are very different creators and they get to play off of each other and kind of create things that independently they might not. Yeah, totally. And I'm tempted to ask you about Dale Cooper, who I believe you you have insinuated or maybe outright said that he's like the perfect amalgamation of the of the two creators but instead i'm going to give you a different comparison question and how would you compare contrast or potentially equate the following the woodsman and doug Puz? are they equal hmm that's interesting because i feel like a common interpretation of the doug Puz is basically the spirits like people have said like bob and the little man or doug puzz i always thought it made a better fit with windham Earl. like somebody coming from the outside meddling in the spirit world and maybe trying to control it in some way i almost feel like even though he comes from the lodge like the doppelganger mr c is that kind of figure uh, so i would see the, him more i see the doug puzz as the as the human actor in all of it so the woodsmen are more like tools you know they're like physical particles made flesh, basically, or shown as flesh. How about um, the dweller on the threshold as a concept or as a, a literal entity? What are your general thoughts on that as far as Twin Peaks goes? Um, I definitely find it much more interesting as a concept, uh, you know, that you can turn into a figure, but it has to be a figure that, that um, represents the person confronting themselves. I mean, that's what's interesting about the dweller of the threshold is this idea that you're facing your own shadow self. So I think when people externalize it too much, it becomes less interesting to me. It's a sort of a monster of the week type thing of, you know, will you battle the dweller on the threshold and, and whatever. It's like, no, it has to be, it has to be the Jungian shadow. That, that's, what, that's what's interesting about that idea, I think. What does that mean? Or how would you describe it? The the dweller or the shadow or just in general that concept? Both. Yeah, both. Um well, I'll I'll describe it in the context or the with the examples of Twin Peaks, because I think that's easier than just sort of <laughs> generalizing about it. Um, I think in the arc of Twin Peaks it's introduced as something that Cooper has to face and struggle with, with the implication that perhaps 
Leland in the past had had uh, struggled with something like that as well, uh, partly in some deleted dialogue, which is uh, part of the lore to me, even though they don't actually say it in episode 17. Um, and then he, f- for whatever reason, he fails in that test. And I think the ground narratively, not not in terms of the story chronology, but in terms of how we experience the story, it then shifts to Lara and shows us how she did actually succeed in uh, confronting the dweller of the threshold. I think in part because she already, like that wasn't the struggle. The struggle for her was not to recognize that, you know, her, her own face and her shadow. It was to recognize that there was more to to her than the shadow that that this this darkness wasn't all that there was to her um so in that sense she might have even almost had an advantage over cooper in in that kind of narrow sense because he's much more alienated from his his darkness like he's fascinated by the darkness and pulled towards it but he seems to have trouble reconciling his sense of self with the knowledge of that uh, potential for, for destruction and, and uh, cruelty and selfishness and all of that. And that I think results in him being divided or I shouldn't say because that was sort of the John Thorne theory that I think was really compelling. And I almost wish they'd gone, they'd emphasize that more. Um, But they do kind of, flirt with the idea of the doppelganger being already there and all of that i think a lot of stuff in twin peaks it works better almost on the impressionistic level than on the explanatory level so like if you see something it almost makes more sense than what they tell than what they end up telling you it is um that's kind of my (laughs) my feeling about a lot of it so Forgive me for being the dumb guy, but the word dweller and the word mm-hmm. threshold can be defined how, perhaps? The idea is that if you want to get to the, at least as Hawk explains, if you want to get to the White Lodge, you have to pass through the uh, dweller on the threshold. You have to confront your shadow self, understand that it's a part of you, and that it is, you know, you and integrate it into your greater sense of self. And then you have access to the greater wisdom. And this is obviously something Frost wrote, um, drawing from theosophy, but it very, it, it makes the trajectory is a little bit different than Lynch's understanding of transcendental, or at least his explanations of transcendental meditation. But the kind of end goal is the same of like a higher unity um like a you know an integration of the different elements and understanding that you're part of this greater whole rather than uh, resisting and keeping yourself apart and trying to stay quote-unquote pure in a way that is actually diminished yeah so the, the word threshold like specifically refers to a space a place a boundary well, it's a, it's a concept, but they literalize it in the form of the two lodges. So liter- yeah. literally within the mythology, the threshold is implicitly between the Black Lodge and the White Lodge. Have and you, so um... in a psychological sense, it's between your lower sense of self, isolated, atomized, 
um, repressing certain things and a higher sense of self that is uh, wiser and more integrated. And the threshold is the spot between those two selves and the dweller is yourself. The dweller is the part that you repress and resist and don't want to look at. And uh, you have to, you know, confront it with what is it, say, perfect courage or literally annihilate your soul. So that's, that's, yeah. that's the, in some ways, the central struggle in Twin Peaks that gets refracted yeah. and diffused in all these different ways. Think of all the characters looking in mirrors from beginning mm. to end. Mm. <laughs> Do you have any experience with this, uh, any personal experience with this, this stuff, this concept, this activity, perhaps? I don't this, really uh, have like spiritual practices. I would say, um, you know, I've, read or or otherwise engaged with ideas that resonated with like inner experiences or whatever um i guess that's how i describe it but no i, I don't have like a particular I, i'm not like lynch with yeah. the transcendental meditation and stuff where so, he has yeah. a specific like i think his whole all of his spirituality is very much um channeled through that particular experience and anchored in that in a weird way if it makes sense to say anchored with something that is ostensibly you know i don't know if unanchoring is the right word but but sending you off into this other realm or whatever i see yeah although your, your answer actually clarified something for me because it just it gave me a different angle to look at this and uh is there um is there like a shadow you or uh have you ever done any of that stuff where you're like you, um, try to, you try to consciously or deliberately make contact with whatever this stuff might be or this part of oneself that that might be is that like a it's like a, a thing one can do intentionally or does it kind of happen when it has to happen because so i mean generally speaking um you know again i'm giving you my impression of all this i'm mm -hmm. not i don't have a particular spiritual practice i'm not by any means an expert in any of this but yeah, my yeah, impression yeah. my impression of of this the way this works is um yes there are there are practices i think it happens to people spiritual let's just say spiritual experiences generally they happen to people and there are also things people can do to cultivate them. So if that answers the question, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think, I think people have what they might call peak experiences that put them in touch with the parts of themselves that they are normally severed from, whether that be with drugs, with, uh, hmm. uh, physical, certain physical practices or whatever. Um, I mean, honestly, I think most people at some point have something like that just with dreams, even where they'll something will manifest to them in a in a altered consciousness state that that they might not otherwise uh, be aware of. Yeah, I I just I find the whole like the the whole possibility that like maybe somebody's a monster, <laughs> it doesn't know it or something, or. Or maybe there's like the you know there's monster within and you don't even know yeah. it and and or, or but maybe other people see it and you don't see it 
Yeah, I think with that thing, I mean that always that question always leads me back to Leland and the and the struggle mm. that 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 has always been one of the I wouldn't necessarily say the because I think Laura and in a maybe in more indirect way Cooper are sort of more at the center, um, but Leland is almost like the litmus the, the the you know the 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 thing that you can hold up to look at and see a kind of crystalline picture of the, of, of somebody like struggling with a darkness that they are not uh, a combination of not able and willing. And, and that, you know, it's kind of the crux of the issue. Where mm. does one end and the other begin to, to um, recognize and, resist if that's exactly the right word but like so so i go back to like leland and i think what is compelling to me what i've always sort of argued for and against people who sort of treat it as a more simplistic kind of possession narrative um i think both in terms of reality and in terms of within the story it resonates more um potently if we understand there's a sense that there's a sense of responsibility there that for all the whatever may have unfairly been imposed upon him he has a um i mean there are choices but i don't i wouldn't just limit it to the concept of choice or decision it's it's also a sense that he's like he his core identity is enmeshed in what he denies like it's it's to to separate out the 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 you know the good leland the bad bob and all of that i think is a diminishing um exercise in many ways of the narrative and in a weird way of of leland himself because um well you might you know sort of preserve some flimsy sense of his morality or something it's like now attached to a character who practically doesn't exist anymore <laughs> you know you mm. can't you can't you're ripping out his guts if you rip if you try to uh if you if you try to uh you know if you indulge the denial that he himself i think exercises that's my experience of it yeah that is that is interesting um what do either of the fi following terms mean so the first one is psychic, which could be a noun or an adjective. Mm, yeah. And the second one is lodge entity. And you, you know, I've watched Twin Peaks before and you, you know, I'm into the show. So I've heard. <laughs> yeah. And, but nonetheless, these, I think these terms are interesting to try to, not to pin down, but just to explore. So take your pick, either or both. What do these terms mean? Uh, in the context of Twin Peaks? Yeah, I think so. But not necessarily. I think psychic is uh, it's a way of describing people that are plugged in or in in a rhythm with the undercurrents of Twin Peaks. So not necessarily what's happening visually before their eyes, although it's often presented to us in a visual way because it's a visual medium. But hmm. um, they're they're tuned in to the the subterranean stream so to speak of twin peaks i think that's what it that's what it means in the context of the show um i don't think it's necessarily like 
like there's the literal sense of like Sarah's a psychic because she sees things she's not present for. Um, but I think it's it's more of a deeper sense of like just in touch with that realm that can manifest in various ways. And Lodge Entity, um, I mean, I, I don't know if that's, I tend to use the word spirits to okay. refer to that, but I guess less than the specific word one chooses, I'm sort of interested in what their their kind of resonance is or their importance to to um the narrative and the world that it's that it creates so for me uh, um i find the most interesting when they correspond to something in the characters who are not uh from the spirit realm i i have fun kind of flirting sometimes with the thought of like well okay these are beings they have their own agenda or whatever and all mm -hmm. of that that's a, that can be interesting i think jubal Brousseau once had a really interesting argument about how maybe like they speak in a kind of language like assembled from human touchstones that they don't fully understand like oh the creamed mm -hmm. corn that's going to be our pictogram of of pain and suffering or whatever and, and all of that that can be really interesting sometimes but ultimately at the end of the day what i'm looking at is uh, how do they amplify and illustrate and um, reinforce the human drama. Like, what is it? What are they representing in that sense? Um, and that's kind of where I go with it. Um, yeah, that's trying to decide if I want to drill down. But I think I would like to ask a slightly different question. Are there any particular um, performances in Twin Peaks? at large that you would like to shout out, especially call attention to, rhapsodize about. Uh, this could be cast, crew, big, small. Are there any performances that really just like drive you nuts in a good way? I'm sure there'll be one I think of <laughs> like after uh, when I'm not, when I'm not, you know, when I don't yeah, get to not put it. on the spot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause it's, it's like, there are there were you know there are little moments flourishes obviously there are the big performances that everybody knows about talks about um there's a good you know one character who i find interesting a lot of people do not care for this character i don't mean they just they don't like him because he's a villain which he is but like they kind of don't seem to find the performance style compelling and i i kind mm. of do is is hank jennings um chris mulkey is that yeah. character i think his his sort of like his he's a phony but he's not like um like you always know he's a phony but you're also kind of like oh he's doing kind of a passable job pretending he's not like i know he is but mm -hmm. he has that like con artist charm about him you know and I find that interesting. I actually find that to be, and it's very different from a lot of, it's not as, it's a little more nuanced, kind of less heightened than a lot of Twin Peaks performances. Um, so it's, it's different in that way. I, I've, I've always thought that was an interesting performance and, uh, and character in that sense. Anything cast crew behind the scenes that jumped to uh, mind and you, and you could say no. Let's see. Well, of course, Mary Sweeney. I mean, that's the one that I've devoted 
by far the most attention to outside of Lynch and Frost. And I guess that's less of a Twin Peaks thing, although that Twin Peaks is a breakthrough, both the killer's reveal and the uh, firewalk with me, which is so fascinating that those are the only two parts of Twin Peaks that she has a hand mm. in editing. Well, a direct hand, because I think she was assistant editor on a lot on some of the other stuff. But like mm. for that to be her initiation into the Lynch verse is very interesting. I think. Yeah, say a little bit more about her, if you don't mind. Um, she has a particular there, there's a couple things that are fascinating about her. One is like harder to pin down, it's just a general sensibility that her presence corresponds to in Lynch's work that takes us from Maddie's murder to Mulholland Drive. She's like heavily involved in almost all of that, other than like the Twin Peaks finale, and I think one of the segments in a uh, hotel room, everything else she's editing for him. And so, so there's this kind of sensibility of the Sweeney years, as I call them that like 10 year period uh, that to me is the most romantic, intoxicating, dreamy Lynch that there is. Um, I like the other stuff, but I, you know, I don't have the same, like, eh, the the passion of it to me is rooted in those like fire walk with me Mulholland Drive Lost Highway straight story really in a way um, the killers reveal in Twin Peaks like that stuff I think when without her Lynch is a little more and this is interesting too like I'm not saying this is a criticism but he's a little more dry uh, at times he's a little more like um, and, you know, you can get reductive about this stuff, but there is sort of like a yin yang masculine feminine energy thing about it, where when he's working closely with her, uh, I mean, it's explicit in the sense that there are many more feminine uh, protagonists in his work when during those years, hmm. but also just in a more general kind of sense of, you know, what you would associate, uh, again, in that sort of Jungian sense of like the anima and the animus. Um, I really find that rhythm really rich and fascinating i think her collaboration with lynch um interests me for like the opposite reason of lynch and frost collaboration where i feel like they really yes they jive on certain things but i feel like they have they're really divergent figures and i like that that uh, element of reacting off of one another and, and almost to one another in a way um with sweeney it's much more harmonious and so there's that general sense specifically her editing rhythms, I really, really, really like um, the sequences and like Lost Highway in the desert, uh, her, her superimpositions over things. And I think it's fair to call. I mean, this is something that it's you can't it, it's still a little bit hard to separate Lynch and Sweeney. It's worth pointing out that he kind of starts in this direction with Wild at Heart. Um, she was an assistant editor on that, but, you know, that was a Dwayne Dunham joint. And he kind of continues it into Inland Empire, which she was not uh, directly editing. So it's it's not just a Mary Sweeney thing, but it certainly is in rhythm with her presence. And I think attributable in many ways to her because um, for one thing, he did not, he was not a hands-on editor until the digital period. Prior to that, he didn't supposedly didn't even like editing it was like a hmm. sad process for him because he's taking things away you know necessary but sad and um 
he would sort of let the editors handle it and then he'd come in and comment and they'd start to tweak it together and he'd be involved at that point, but they would be hands-on and um, you know, you never quite know what goes on in those, in those editing rooms and where, uh, what, how that alchemical process works, but there's some magic happening there between them that uh, to me results in his richest strain of work. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I, I appreciate you go, going a little more into depth. And I, I know you've spoken about uh, Mary Sweeney quite a bit in the past, but I I, I just kind of wanted to hear you synthesize it. Yeah, and um, I'll point I'll point to any viewers who haven't seen it to, um, you know, I have several Journey Through Twin Peaks chapters on their, on their collaboration, but I also distilled them into a standalone video that I put up on Vimeo called uh, Dream Souls, David Lynch and Mary Sweeney that you can kind of watch independently of journey through twin peaks, even though they were conceived as chapters within that series. Uh, it, it, it's, it provides kind of a half hour overview of their coming together and they're coming apart. Um, not entirely chronological. It jumps around a little bit, but like it, it, it has that sort of flow of, of the collaboration and where it ended up. Yeah, that's good stuff. I did watch that one. Um, the, uh, you know the Laura Orb, as it's famously known, in Part Eight of the Return. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is that? And like, why do you think it's filmed and like handled in the manner it is? My your way opinion, of obviously, yeah. obviously, your opinion. My way of responding to it was different from a lot of other people's. Uh, I can see why people got sort of upset with it. Like, why are we turning? this very human character into a sort of cartoon deity or something, a deity. But um, to me, even though it takes place ostensibly in 1945 and it's like a prequel thing, it, it just, it feels to me like a post fire walk with me gesture. And I kind of read it more as an artistic gesture than like a narrative component, even though it, it is that mm. it, it has its own purpose to serve. I see it as a celebration of the Laura that has transcended via firewalk with me, both literally and in the text of like ending up in the red room with the angel crying and laughing, but also it like metatextually where they took this character that was in the background that was like a MacGuffin for the other characters and slowly gave her more and more life until she becomes this unforgettable cinematic presence. So that moment of like kind of birthing Lara and kissing her, sending Darren down to earth almost feels like a, a tribute to what they've already done in the narrative to me. Um, and that's how I read it more in that light than as a literal, you know, uh, statement that actually the Lara was always this goddess figure that was just, you know, coming down Christ-like to suffer or whatever. Hmm. Mm. It is interesting too that it's the school portrait, which um, Lara herself has always been the false. It's kind of been the false image of Lara, you know. That's how it was presented. I will say false with a grain of truth. I think the idea is you look at it and you can catch, you know, in, in the original Twin Peaks, you can catch a glimpse of what might have been there, but it's it's so distant and it's you're held at the distance by this facade, the smiling facade that you can't get past. And so it's interesting to see that that's the picture he chose to put inside the orb and send, send down as a representation of Laura. 
um, which makes it feel more iconic in a way and less about Lara as the flesh and blood human being, um, but kind of a re referring to that for me at least. Yeah, is that how you initially interacted with that? Yeah, scene? that's that was my gut reaction and kind yeah. of how I've always felt about it ever since. Yeah, that's that's just really cool to say. You know, here's something that's in the story, but maybe is not having a story based or narrative role, but it's actually functioning in some other sort of way. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. it, I think it, if it's it was neat. put there, maybe even by Mark Frost in like a literal way, but just the way David Lynch handles it to me communicates more as a gesture. Yeah. That's why I was curious about that, like, you know, like that. Yeah. I was curious to, to hear your thoughts specifically about that, you know, like, not only what it is, but like the way it's filmed, how it's handled, like all the decisions that were made. Well, one of the most interesting, one of the most interesting things about the return is that it's, um, it's, it's in many ways, the first time we really get to see like David Lynch fully handling and embodying and making his own what are mm. probably Frostian concepts because they just weren't that head to head on the original series. They wrote the pilot together and there's so much that hasn't yet come up in the pilot and everything after that is kind of a little more of a tug of war, I think between them and less of like, here's this thing we work on together. David Lynch obviously decides he can live with it because he goes ahead and shoots it, but he sort of, places it within his own frame of reference if that makes sense yeah it does um take take your pick with my next question uh one of them is about dual archetypes and i've, I've heard you speak of this elsewhere and i'm not 100 percent sure of what that means so my question is which characters within twin peaks are dual archetypes another question concerns the uh laura's dream and fire walk with me where she finds out from annie that the good dale is supposedly in the lodge like th does that resonate at all to uh the way uh philip gerard or mike appears in the return like is there any similarities there you know and my, fir my, my first question was about dual archetypes what does that I'll, mean and, i'll answer that one secondly but so yeah and i'm gonna mind i'll answer the specific one first so uh i think in terms of of annie's appearance i mean it's different because i guess it's similar because they're projecting from one place into another and she's supposedly is the missing pieces show in the hospital projecting into laura's room hmm. um the fact that she's a human character although i guess it's worth asking you know he's credited as philip gerard so is that the human philip gerard throughout the return uh, for my character series i just decided he was mike i just said you know mm. when he's doing his spirit duties and he's always in the spirit place we don't see him at all in the physical world except when he's projecting from the spirit place um you could make some interesting argument about how actually this is the shoe salesman incorporated into the, da, da, da. it's just Occam's razor. If you can ever apply such a thing to twin peaks says that this is the spirit, Mike um, he's encoded that way. So, so to me, that's different from Annie being alive 
in the human world being you know sort of warped through this this uh you know it, it's almost more similar to cooper and laura seeing each other in their dreams i would say than it is to the actual spirits manifesting does that answer your question or is that yeah, going a does. different direction okay no it does and um is annie actually contacting laura or is laura just having a dream I mean, she's definitely contacting her because we see her saying the same thing in the missing pieces in that hospital scene at the end. Mm. So, uh, you know, if we take that as as canon, quote unquote, yeah. then yeah. which is the context we're talking about this in. So I guess we kind of have to um, for the sake of this argument, at least. Then, yeah, I think the the idea is. She is. uh she's being used to speak to Laura in a dream. So yes, it's a dream, but it's also, you know, real <laughs> as these things go in twin peaks. It's never just one thing or the other. There's like, uh, it's a, you know, the relationship between them is fluid. So, um, yeah. yeah. Fluid is a good word. Um, and then can you just tell me what dual archetypes are? I have a, a sense, but I don't, think i'm gonna what was the con you said i used this phrase yeah and if you don't remember it's it's well it's i mean okay. i've used i've definitely used those words yeah. um independently and i probably put them together at some point but but um, honestly honestly you don't remember I, the context almost i would say 90 percent of my questions i'm driving in the car i'm thinking of stuff and i'm just talking into my phone <laughs> And I, I need to, by the way, I need to get my phone to respond to the word Diane. So that, <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. I realized literally yesterday that uh, yeah. most of my tweets or comments or whatever, or even just notes to self are just yeah. me, uh, you know, driving and talking into a device. So well, people have definitely observed <laughs> that like Diane is the proto Siri, you know, yeah, which makes her yeah. presence in the return where she's like this weird yeah, that's interesting. Help a presence that is is, is has some autonomy, has some not mm. autonomy. I mean, she that's to me, cool, is, actually, yeah. Diane is to me the most fascinating character in in the Return. I think she, if I was to say one thing above all else that the Return adds to Twin Peaks, it would be Diane. Um, I think many of its other very interesting contributions are sort of more riffs on on stuff that was already kind of there. Mm. Um, and then, you know, and then there's stuff like Judy or whatever that you can kind of grapple with that is sort of new, but sort of vague or whatever. Like to me, Diane has yeah. the most to explore. Um, so, but to answer your question, I guess I would focus on the duality part of that because that's an idea that interests me that um, I don't know if strictly speaking, you know, you're the language guy, so you might might know better than me. Like I, I tend to think that duality and dualism I don't know if they're really used differently, but they have different connotations to me. Uh, I think of dualism as like more of a dogmatic insistence on dichotomy and duality as a recognition of different sides that are still connected. So like a, you know, a duality would be ultimately expressing a, or, or implying a oneness, whereas a dualism would be more of a pushing apart. And so I think of Twin Peaks, especially at its best, as being more about duality than dualism. Hmm. And and yes, we're showing all these fragmented pairs and doubles, 
but the idea ultimately is to bring them together rather than to like drive them further apart and say, you know, here's one extreme, here's the other. Um, yes, you are looking at one extreme and then the other, but ideally it's with a sense of understanding their relationship to one another. And does this make you think of Diane also? Um, yes. Although what's interesting about her and what I think is somewhat new in Twin Peaks is there are all these scattered pieces that kind of feel in a way like they don't totally refer back to a whole. Um, mm. But they're all integral. So that's interesting. I've never really thought about this before. In some ways, Diane is like the, it, it's not dualism exactly. Cause like, we're not shown like, here's Diane's good side. Here's her bad side. Here's this. It's more just like, I don't think there's a, you know, even though the Topa collaborates with Cooper and stuff, but there doesn't seem to be like a heavy implication of like hierarchy of the selves with Diane. It's just more different selves. It's more um, components that, can, you know, the Humpty Dumpty that can't be put back together again. But each of those elements, particularly the one that we're told like explicitly is the most illusionistic of all of them, which is the Topa one, um, they have like a vitality to them. Like it's like as if Humpty Dumpty was shattered. Each of the pieces contained, you know, contained uh, some sort of, you know, came to life on its own. Like think of the broom in uh, uh, Fantasia, hmm. the Sorcerer's Apprentice, where it splits apart and it becomes all these different brooms. It's like that's kind of how I see a Diane in a way. Like she's been split apart. And each of those fragments has its own presence and it might be calling out for the whole, but it can't find its way to it. So in that sense, she's like mm -hmm. almost a, a parallel, but different to Cooper and his experience where there is a sense that there's a whole that is that these different parts have been uh, pulled apart from and are, are trying to find, but he has the option of finding it and she doesn't somehow. She can't, she has to make do with being these various um split up parts and and you know to on another level too like i've talked about with john john thorne um she's not that's not just true within the isolated character concept of diane but also of diane as a, in a way a part of cooper you know this idea that she is decorated like the red room that she also looks like his tape recorder which she was referred to as or which was referred to as her in, throughout the original series. Hmm. And that this is something he's lost in his sort of lodge odyssey. And so he can't get back in touch with that. And, and I always love with Twin Peaks that this idea that it's not totally either or that like these things both kind of work and exist in a kind of, you know, think of like a mogul, like a spinning, um, you know, what's the thing that hangs over a mobile, the thing that hangs mobile, over a baby's yeah. head. Yeah. Where it's like got these different arms and there's things hanging off of the arms and they're independent mm -hmm. of each other, but they're also connected. And that's kind of how I see these paradoxes in Twin Peaks. I think Andreas Halskov has written about this too, this idea of like contradictions that are somehow weirdly complementary, you know? And I think the Diane 
uh, Diane maybe is the most paradoxical character in in the return and, and the richest for that. So please forgive me for the following question, but I'm gonna put you I'm gonna put you on the clock. We're gonna go old school. We're gonna go speed round because I know you like the speed round. So yeah, they're fun. For the first I'm one, we're the gonna microphone do... around. So hopefully, I'm not creating all yeah, yeah. headaches for you. It's I don't know no, why I never got a stand. I've always just <laughs> held it in my hand. It's foolishness, but I'm a man of I'm a creature of habit. You're who you are. I you can't. Like, uh, by the way, do you like do you like yourself? <laughs> I gotta answer that one. <laughs> yes, I mean I like myself, but I guess I just answered it, but good, but not in a serious sense. <laughs> Would it... You mean you don't like yourself in a serious sense, or you didn't answer? No, it I'm not going to answer sense. it in a serious sense. Oh, okay. But but yes, I mean, my instinct is to say yes. How's that? <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uh, that was a warm up round. Okay. <laughs> so you kind of invented this game the last time we spoke, and uh, it's it's not a very complex game, but you get sixty seconds or less. But for the first round, you get thirty seconds or less. And the question is, who is Diane? Diane is a tulpa, NATO, a tape recorder, a Cooper's anima, an independent creature, and Linda. And more. <laughs> okay, so the rule is I guess you can go less than you can go less than the time limit. Sure, why not? Right. You don't have to get um, it right on the button. And you have a minute for, for the next question. Uh, some thoughts on the character or the role or the various functions of Lucy? Um, sort of the wise comic relief type, like Andy, I think, where they're foolish, the wise fool, maybe you could say, where uh, they're affectionately, you know, and amusingly regarded as, as kind of silly, sometimes maybe not all that bright, and yet, not only is their heart in the right place, they're useful in the moment they need to be useful in a way that maybe other characters are not or can't be. Great. The famous line, I, I feel like I know her, but sometimes my arms bend back. What does that first clause mean? The I feel like I know her part. That's uh, interesting because it's almost a more Diane-like statement, isn't it? Like that seems like something Diane or one of the Dianes would say, whereas Laura, I think certainly by the time if we're looking at her presence in the Red Room is coming post Firewalk with me, it seems like she actually does have a more integrated sense of self at that point. Um, I would almost say maybe it's a relic of an earlier conception, <laughs> but they they stuck with it. So I don't know. The. um. In the return, part 17, Cooper asks Diane, do you remember everything? Now, first of all, do you remember that part? Yes. Every, what does that mean, everything? I think the explanation that people tend to lean on is that he's talking about a plan to find Judy or, or whatnot that she's like a part of. Um, and I think that seems to be where Frost's interested in it is. So maybe that's, maybe he came up with the line, maybe that's how it was written. But 
Um, I think it probably has deeper implications than that that I probably can't answer in a minute. <laughs> so that's that for a dodge. <laughs> it's okay. That's okay. You know, most people wouldn't even wouldn't even play this game. So. <laughs> I like I like the uh, it's 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 almost like uh, power suggest not power suggestion but like it's 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 like for almost free associational. Yeah, the constraints like help. I think the yeah, constraints. Yeah, yeah makes interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, when did do you, when did Ray meet Daria? Any any speculations, thoughts? How, where, through whom, etc. That's a random question. Yeah, it's funny because we know he's an FBI informant, but they never really say what she was was because she's obviously part of the plot with him. Um, so where like did he just kind of use her or was she also in touch with jeffries and stuff and did they meet through their involvement with mr c i i guess rather than answer i can only ask more questions hmm. <laughs> but yeah, uh, maybe those will bring some of... people to an answer or at least you know have fun thinking of possibilities yeah and i wonder if that's even an important question but uh, possibly maybe, you know maybe there's some like a maybe there's some big big jewel underneath that little random stone probably not but um there's a famous line in twin peaks that goes we live inside a dream have you ever heard that line before twin peaks no 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 in twin peaks do you remember that line oh yeah of course <laughs> that's like the climax really of the part 17 in a way yeah. i mean i so guess the, it has several but, climaxes my question for you is in 30 seconds or less, who's we? The viewers and Cooper, and I'm not sure about others. Okay. Um, an old question from uh, an online buddy of mine named Chris, who asks, can Bob switch hosts on the go? Can Bob possess multiple people at once? Mm. Um, after Leland died, where did he go? So you could take any or all of those. There's no evidence of the first, of the second one. And um, the first one, it seems difficult because there's a process to how he gets in Leland and how he gets with Mr. C. Um, what was the third one again? If we still have 10 seconds on the clock. <laughs> uh, I forget. Oh, where okay. did he go after Leland? Oh, okay. Uh, I, uh, easy answer is back to the lodge. But um, I think it's interesting to think he could become entangled or um, superposed to use the quantum terms that Martha Nockhamson uses with Lynch, even though we're not given any evidence of it, there would be something Lynchian about it if he could be in multiple places at once. Did he, um, did Bob travel? Like, you know, you know, that experiment scene in part eight where you see mm -hmm. all that splurge coming up was, was, was Bob just hitching a ride like a hitchhiking or was Bob sort of birthed there or something else? I kind of doubt that's the beginning of Bob. Yeah, but um, at least maybe it's the beginning of him in that particular quote unquote form. 
you know, because matter is always splitting and reforming and combining and coming apart. And again, that idea of superposition and entanglement mm. that you can, you know, that, that complexity of matter. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I actually, yeah. And I just, I just realized uh, last night that you and she did a, a, a long interview together. And so that's kind of like right on my list for next things to. Yeah, I did a couple, I did. Down. I did um, uh, a text. I mean, you know, the they were both over the phone or whatever um, mm. audio, but the one was turned into a print interview, and uh, from 2014, and that's more focused on her books, "The Passion of David Lynch" and "David Lynch Swerves." Mm. And then we did a podcast interview in uh, 2019 about her book called. Um, I'm I'm blanking on it at the moment, but it's actually about uh, TV, like cable, the cable, the premium cable era kind mm -hmm. of, of of these TV shows like Mad Men and Sopranos, and there were, there's a chapter on the return. In yeah, that, it's, so. it has auteur in the title, I think. Yeah, is it auteur TV or yeah, yeah, yeah? That's cool. I've I've been. I've been really interested in what she has to say, and I know basically none of it. So I'm looking forward to checking that out before I, because I can't get any more books right now. I have, <laughs> I have too much reading to catch up on. I know me too. Plus I'm trying to read, you know, I'm trying to read other fiction as well, but not trying. I'm reading other fiction as well. Yeah. But I should say I'm trying to make time, you know, trying to just manage my time for it. Um, Like, uh, you know, we're, we'll stick with part eight the the fireman seems to have an interesting work day um at least from what we get to see maybe not maybe not his typical day or maybe it's just a typical tuesday i know right where, who knows <laughs> where he's got he's just got fires to start or put out you know yeah all over the place <laughs> very <laughs> this slowly. is an unusual day or do you think yeah, really? <laughs> he works at his own pace <laughs> and yeah and he talks well, if it's him, I should say the giant speaks very slowly when we first encounter him as well. So that's kind of interesting. Um, a lot of slow stuff between the fireman, the giant, the waiter, and they all have some some connection to each other, though I, I can't quite say what it is. So I guess I'll change my question to what's up with the slowness between those characters? or any of the characters individually. What do you think about that? I mean, I want to answer it in the meta way, which is mm. that's David Lynch intervening in the narrative in season two after a very fast paced finale, which was all frost, like all, all written directed the most, some of the purest frost we get in twin peaks and Lynch uh, supposedly watched that episode and said, his only comment was, oh, a lot happened that night, huh? Or something like that. So the waiter and the giant are quite literally like Lynch stepping in and just being like, slow down. <laughs> we're going to, yeah, we're going to maybe recapture something or redirect something here. Yeah. And so, it's funny because the audience, if there's any one point that the audience, that Twin Peaks lost its mass audience for good, I mean, you can make a few cases, but that's kind of the clearest moment where the tide shifted and where it lost the critical buy-in too, was the giant in uh, 
episode eight, not part eight. <laughs> yeah, and that's a piece that that's one of the videos you did in your journey to Twin Peaks series. That that was really one of the, the more excellent videos, in my opinion. Um, well, it got to be kind of meta because um, within the context of the video essay, I don't show the whole 16 minute sequence, but I show like a, a minute or two or maybe three, which for the, you know, in a micro, it's, it's like a microcosm of the show. Cause for the video essay, that three minutes is much slower than the pace I'd been keeping. So it's like on a, exactly. a kind of yeah. a, a, a economy of scales. I don't know if that's the right word. I kind of tried to represent the experience of watching the show within the context of watching the video. Essay. Yeah. Because it takes um, quite a bit of real estate in your which, video. Which, yeah. yeah. Which, which was one of the things that when I had a little bit of a run in with CBS in 2014, that they objected to was some of these clips run on for, a bit long. And I said, well, you know, I had to make the case that this, there was a reason for that. I wasn't just like, Hey, look at, look at Twin Peaks. You're getting access to it here on this free YouTube channel. It was like, no, I was as part of the analysis I was doing, it had to play for some extra time, but that was interesting. Um, little side note on that. The, uh, you know, I was contacted by a lawyer from them at that time and I got in touch with Kevin B. Lee because he'd had run-ins with YouTube very mm. early on. He was kind of the test case for a lot of the copyright stuff. And he was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. I've never actually uh, talked to a lawyer directly mm. for any. I've just gotten the takedown notices. Um, and it went, I, ultimately it went fairly well. I mean, um, I, there's a lot more I could say about that because they claim the underlying content in order to monetize it. So CBS has made money from my videos, but I never mm. have. But, and, and, you know, there's a sort of a where's fair use, where's their thing, where does that, and all of this. It, it, there's actually, you know, there's a decent under, to the extent that anything in the US isn't just up to the whims of, of somebody in a robe somewhere, um, there is decent legal precedence and acceptance of fair use to a degree that I think people don't quite realize that you can use a lot more stuff a lot more freely than um, you might think, you know, which is interesting. But anyways, let's move on. Yeah. To that. yeah no, that's Are a, we that's still on the lightning round or? Yeah, let's go back to okay. the lightning round. <laughs> back to the so, lightning round. You know, we, we get a digression here and there. Um, uh Blue Rose Task Force podcast, John Bernardi, and often it's just him solo, but he, sometimes he does a, a co-host, uh, and she's great. Anyway, that podcast has offered a pretty compelling case, in my opinion, that the show was heading towards cancellation, um, mainly because of ratings, not because they didn't reveal the killer. Um, and many people have criticized like the fact that they had to go ahead and reveal the killer and um but oh yeah okay so you're saying chronologically it was it was headed for cancellation before they were forced yeah to it wasn't the yeah. like he you know he, it wasn't like the killer reveal that really killed the show it was the, the ratings were dipping anyway yeah. so um and I know you've criticized. I'm gonna. Can we do this there. one as? Can we do this one as not a lightning round? Sure, sure. Before we go back to the lightning round, because I want to yeah. yeah, dig into this somewhat. Yeah, but I'm bumbling a little bit, so I'm actually going to read. Um, 
do, do you or any other critics of that decision to reveal the killer do, do you have a, an alternate path or storyline um, that, that could have maintained the integrity of the show but but also kept the ratings i wouldn't call myself a critic of the revealing the killer i mean i think it's complex because they didn't have much of anywhere to go after that but it it creates the best moments of twin peaks both directly and indirectly i mean mm -hmm. the killer's reveal is extraordinarily powerful and fire walk with me is possible because of it and probably because it happened when it did if somehow they'd been more successful and they'd gone on for several seasons i don't know that they would have made a prequel film um so you know that in that sense it it had to happen and i also like the fact that the twin peaks that lynch seems to have wanted is a, it's you know as he says a beautiful thing right this idea of like longing and not knowing and gazing into the mystery forever like i get the appeal of that i i really do but the forcing of his hand by whoever i kind of thought it was frost had more of a role in it and numerous people have said no 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 no, no. like really whatever for because frost made some comments to the press that were a little more diplomatic in terms of well you know mm -hmm. we had to reveal it but from it seems like it really was the executives pushing it more than anybody else um the fact that he had to do that and confront that totally trans and this is kind of one of the theses of journey through twin peaks i think it totally transformed his work and I think took it to a deeper, more profound place where instead of just being this, I don't want to be dismissive of it because again, there's something really rich and intoxicating about living in the mystery forever. And some work should do that. Mm. Um, but I'm glad Twin Peaks didn't because what it gave us instead was an understanding that actually the answers matter and deepen what we have in front of us instead of um, reducing it. So it certainly wasn't a failure in that sense, mm. in the sense that it killed the core purpose of the story and they didn't have uh, the, you know, that, that, that there was no way to fall. Like the only way to follow it up is to do something like firewalk me or the return where you keep circling around that, even from a distance. And it's always kind of there on the periphery, or at the core, at the distant core. Um, but they tried to move on from Laura altogether. And ultimately what's interesting about the back half of the series is their failure to do, <laughs> their inadvertent failure to do so. Not not what they were trying to do, in my opinion. Um, so anyways, that that that's kind of my, um, my sentiment on the revealing of the killer. So I guess in that sense, I can't quite answer the question because I, I would not, mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was a miss. It was, I, I wouldn't criticize the, it was made, the, the, the people making it were making, making that decision, were making it for the wrong reasons, but it, it kind of had to happen that way, you know? And I don't think there was an alternate path really. I mean, this is the interesting thing about David Lynch and mm. Twin Peaks. He loved the concept of creating a TV world and just living in it and it never ending and this and that. But, but like, 
it was always like in theory. It was always like in the abstract. Um, he left it to other people to handle. And so they were like, okay, I guess we have to make a TV show. And then they made a TV show and he seemed kind of upset about that, but I don't think he ever really had an alternative to that. Um, I mean, kind of what we got in the return, but that, you know, that wasn't possible in 1990 and on ABC to make like an 18 hour film, quote unquote, and just kind of luxuriate forever. And, and even the return, the return, works the way it works because it's conceived as like a limited series if you were doing that for seasons on end i don't you know he could he could do something interesting with that but i don't think he ever really gave it a go um all we have of twin peaks is like him saying god it would be great to live in this world now i'm gonna go off and make a movie you guys take care of this and then showing up being like oh no not like this and then making fascinating interventions and then leaving again and and so forth so yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of a dream that he could never attain yeah uh, that's interesting and you've certainly heard more at least fan commentary and theories than i have and i was just curious if uh if anybody ever came up with a way to to keep the show alive and to still keep that particular like mystery alive because all indications are that the show was not going to stay alive due to ratings yeah um, well that's a that's another thing and that that was kind of initially why I said, let's take a break from the speed round. Cause that whole mm. thing about why twin peaks went off the air. I, I do feel, yeah, it's, it's undoubtedly, um, I don't want to call it the rot, maybe appropriate for a show about trees, but you know, in terms of its vi- business viability, it's financial or, you know, whatever it's, it's value to the network. The rot set in, almost immediately um the pilot was massive and that's the only part Mm. of twin peaks that was massive Mm. nothing ever was again that way maybe maybe the secret diary book because that was on the new york times bestseller list so it it doesn't take much to get um you know uh, books don't have to sell that many copies to get on there maybe they did in 1990 i don't know but Mm. but that was like another part of twin peaks that was way up there and it, it certainly got the cultural um elite let's say on its side for a while. Then they turned on it rather harshly, but like it was on the cover of all these magazines. Mm. Uh, It was part of this pop culture hype. It was on SNL, not because it was so hugely popular with audiences, but because the people who were watching it were like movers and shakers in that world. They were kind of talking to themselves a little bit, you know, Mm. like it's interesting the extent to which that's the case. Um, like in terms of in terms of normies, they really did appear to tune into the pilot in major numbers. Like that's something I it, it still kind of blows my mind. I mean, Lynch's most successful film didn't reach as many people as that one episode of television in 1990. Uh, and I guess honestly, his most successful film it would okay, not successful in terms of profitability, but in terms of number of people reached would probably be Dune which was a flop, Mm. but you know, it made 40 million. So however many tickets that is, you know, it it reached more people than whatever would come second. So, but you hold that up against twin peaks and twin peaks reached more, you know, 33 million viewers or something like that. Um, Unthinkable in in today's TV environment, but then where do you go from there? It's like, you can catch them for that moment and then you're just going to lose them from there on being David Lynch. 
And he did every time. I mean, <clears throat> it stuck around for a few episodes, numbers slipping. The dream sequence kind of uh, told some people this isn't for me. And then the season one finale pissed a bunch of people off. And then the season two premiere was the big turning point. But like by that point, it, it, the game that Twin Peaks had to play was to keep kind of tickling the chins of of the of the yuppies and the the uh, the you know comic cultural commentators because they were kind of all it had going for it at that point, and it didn't. It pissed them off, and that was the final straw. From that point on, the show was done because those were the only people really keeping it alive, hmm. uh, both in terms of advertising demographics and also in terms of like buzz, you know, like getting it, getting get getting it to a point where like normies would see it on a magazine stand and be like, oh, I guess this show's big, even though I don't watch it, you know, <laughs> like it, it was it was those it was that. Um, and Lynch had to play a game, which was to be sort of coy and postmodern and winking and not take anything too seriously for them to keep embracing it. And that wasn't the direction he was interested in going in. And, uh, and so by the time you reach Firewalk with me, I mean, good Lord, I've never, <laughs> it's still blows. And it's such an essential part of the lore, like the hard, horrible, horrible reaction that movie got. Um, mm. And really, in a way, more from critics than audiences. Audiences just didn't care. They just didn't go. Um, but the critics who had to see it for their jobs, like they were the ones who really like just just like they were the ones keeping Twin Peaks alive early on. They were the ones jabbing that dagger in as deep as they could go. Mm, like, that's interesting. And, uh, maybe that was a uh, maybe that was sort of like a inverse reaction <laughs> totally from, yeah. from something that you you know if you're that's a weird role to be in you know because you're pushing and promoting something and you're singing the praises of something and then you know there's a little turn and maybe you overdo it in the other direction another thing that you might know that i don't because uh, i haven't seen anything yet um do you know if anybody has done any like compelling interpretation of the use of transparencies or maybe we call that superimpositions or i don't know what the technical term is within the return like there's been many transparent faces that show up mm. we have cooper we have laura's orb we have laura in gordon cole's doorway and we have a couple others i think as well so has anybody sort of like threaded together any connections between all that or, or maybe you or maybe you have current thoughts that's fascinating that you bring that up because my instinct is to say that there's less superimposition in the return than say like the Sweeney years stuff. Um, but you're right. Like there's those major moments. And I think maybe a difference between those and the earlier films is like in the earlier films, a lot of the superimposition stuff. I mean, there's moments like in the original series, obviously like uh, Laura's face is superimposed on Donna, the owl superimposed on on Bob and stuff. But I think a lot of times the superimpositions in Lynch's work, it's like dissolves between scenes, like long mm. lingering kind of overlap. Whereas in this, it's like more static stuff with something just kind of placed over it, like a like a screen. Um, Oh, sorry, I forgot this was a speed round. <laughs> That's okay. You still have. Some I don't know time. that. I don't know if I have more to say about it than that. Um, mm. Just that interesting kind of uh, contrast with his with his earlier work, but uh, 
yeah, I don't know that I have more to say about it at this moment. I haven't seen people, but I do know uh, John Thorne certainly has a lot of commentary on that face in the uh, sheriff's station for sure. Yeah, yeah. Any thoughts on the on the Laura appearance in Gordon Cole's doorway? Um, I, I love that moment at the time because it's like, you know, because mm. of the callback to Laura and Firewalk with me that we weren't getting quite as much of in the return. Like it was always sort of implicit, but that was a moment where it really jumped out at you. Um, I mean, my, my instinct is just like, is that's kind of what it is. It's like in the midst of this, all these other stories, it's like, bam, don't forget this is about Laura in the face of Lynch himself, mm. you know? Mm. Um, there's probably more that it could be said or dug into about why it happens in that moment at that time. Uh, yeah, I, interesting thing again, with talking about Diane and her character, this is a moment where Albert comes and tells him information about Diane not being who she seems. So I don't know, maybe there's something there. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, the world spins a very famous scene at the roadhouse where that song is being performed. And uh, what, what what's happening to the characters in that scene? Or maybe my prefer my preferred question is what what's happening to the viewers, the fans of the show? Because there's a physical reaction that's happening, and it's not just happening to me. Um, it's happening to people w- watching that scene, whether they're outside the roadhouse or maybe the characters within it. Like. It's a fake show. <laughs> it's fiction, you know, mm-hmm. but but stuff is happening there for sure. Uh, you have any thoughts on that? I think that's that is an example of of Lynch's brilliance in situating <laughs> something. Um, he's brilliant in the details, but he's also brilliant in the context uh, in a way that might be sort of underrated sometimes, I think. You know, people say, oh, he's got these great flourishes, but he needs somebody else to sort of organize and and do it. And granted, you know, as I said, this was one of the first things Mary Sweeney ever edited. So she was there to kind of feed off that energy and and give it some form and shape. But nonetheless, like, you know, this is Lynch's conceit, I think, his concept of using the roadhouse as these kind of brackets around the murder sequence. And... I think it's just it's it's part of this notion that it's it's not just it's not just the thing the core thing you're showing people that matters it's the context that you place around it that leads you to that there's a famous quote from god it might have been Quentin Tarantino's editor um actually no I think it was uh DD DD Allen I think the editor of Bonnie and Clyde she said You know, if you want to speed up a scene or change the tone of it, don't mess with the scene, mess with what comes right before it. Mm. And that will completely change how you perceive it. So that's kind of how I see this weaving together of the roadhouse and the bomber living room. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's just so undeniably powerful, you know, (laughs) I believe probably for the actors as well, not even just the characters that they're playing. Yeah, yeah, Dana Ashbrook just, wasn't even supposed to be there. Yeah, yeah. On set. Yeah, it's just it's just fascinating that uh, you know we're watching we're watching fiction and we're having such a real like physical you know reaction to it. Well, um, what does Audrey say in the return? Dreams sometimes harken to a reality, <laughs> right? Yeah, and you know some some people say that um, 
certain works of fiction are you know they're more real than uh, yeah <laughs> looking 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 through your uh silverware drawer for a spoon or you know <laughs> they, crystal, <laughs> you know, they, they crystallize it yeah because they they contain something that's sort of uh maybe more eternal or maybe more shared or universal or something you know something that's deep rather than just something mundane but i think i think they're both they're both real um i don't know i like that scene i i heard something about star trek today that I, i'm not really a big star trek watcher although i enjoyed it supposedly there's like a test that is and the, the whole thing behind the test is that it's unsolvable where like there's a, a riddle or something and it's unsolvable and the point is like it's supposed to uh it's supposed to communicate to people that there are certain things in life that you're going to encounter that are just not solvable and you have to come to grips with that and yeah that 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 roadhouse scene makes me feel that way like there's evil or something you know that we're all gonna witness or encounter and you're not going to be able to win you're not going to be able to defeat certain things and i almost feel like that scene is like uh everybody's getting washed over with that feeling like of oh, some things you just can't beat but i'm not sure but i'm not sure why that creates such a physical reaction in me i can only speak for myself but it's an amazing scene is jacoby a good guy yes or no <laughs> uh <clears throat> Is Jacoby a good guy? I mean, this sort of gets to the problem with like Twin Peaks canon because I feel like there's things that were told and then there's things that like, well, is this part really, you know, part of the full story or something? It's so it's like uh, I, I think the show wants us to think of him as a as a good guy in the end, but it also kind of implies that he at very least um, was like hitting on his like disturbed teenage patient which is kind of unforgivable so um yeah i mean it's this is i think that a lot of the characters in twin peaks you can't really they're they're not set up in a way that you're supposed to be able to say um good or bad i mean even somebody like leland they give you these weird sort of outs where it's like if you want to make an excuse for him you can you know like they, they they i think lynch is ultimately um, probably more so than Frost in a way. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I get the impression he's less interested in good or bad people than he is in like hmm. good and bad, which I do think he he distinguishes. He's not like a sort of a relativist about it, but but good and bad um within the context of of a person like the again going back to that idea i talked about before where it's like you have to integrate the shadow self i, I don't think he i don't think he's super interested in judgment i would say and I, again i don't want to say that in a sense that it's like amoral or something because i don't think he's that but i just i generally don't think he's totally after judgment of people of his characters it's more observation in a way um and uh, like five it, four oh yeah three. yeah we're done with that <laughs> that was way past so, so the answer so the answer is 
Is Jacoby a good guy, yes or no? Uh, I'll give pass, you an easier question. Pass. All right, How's all right. that? Is it here's an easier question? Is it I easy? I mean, probably to be... probably not, honestly, but it feels kind of false okay. to say no, and I'm not even sure why. So I'll oh, okay. Pass. All right. I see. Is it easy to be a good man? I'm thinking of Ben Horn, but also I'm thinking of you and me and just any yeah, in life. I mean that um interesting question actually (laughs) it's easy i think it is i i actually think it's easy to be a good man it's very easy maybe even easier not to be solid if if uh if bob wants in at all costs for whatever reason yeah like bob what he just wants wants a piece of you um like Big time for whatever reason. Yeah, like can, can, like can with somebody, Laura or Leland or Cooper. Yeah, is there a way to live that can deny Bob? You know, if you're his target and he wants it, like, is, is that doable? Um, well, it's interesting you said a way to live because I would say Laura in Fire Walk with you, but obviously she dies in the end. Um, no, what I'm saying is, is there a way to live to keep him from from getting in, whatever that might mean? Well, yeah, no, I do. I do think yeah. that the thrust. I mean, I think the crux of that movie is that Laura ultimately wins out over him, but but within the context of her dying, which is like mm. the precondition of the show existing in the first place. So they're kind mm. of stuck in that. Um. So the, I mean, yeah, yeah I think there's a scenario in which. She, uh, she, I, I think there's a scenario in which you can live without uh, letting Bob in or whatever. But she was in a situation where, given the combination of, of Bob's incentives and Leland's incentives and all of that, she wasn't going to live. Um, but I'm not sure if that, I'm not sure if that's like a, I'm not sure if that's like a direct feature of the predicament, put it that way. Yeah. Um, if Janie's husband wasn't such a loser or a bum, would she have <laughs> would she have said we're living in a dark, dark age? Like if he was a great guy or something, would would she still? I would say no. <laughs> I mean, look at how much look how much her her <laughs> impression of everything changes based mm. on where where. She ends up with Dougie. She says, "Yeah, I, th- I think probably not. That's probably a reflection of her marriage." Yeah, I just think that's really fun to think about. You know, uh, I'm, gonna, okay, at... I'm gonna ask you a question now. <laughs> um, what do you sure. think of the Janie D- Diane uh, relationship or connection? We know that uh, we know about Mike and Bob's relationship. How? Because Mike said something about it, yeah? Right. Do we know about it in any other way other than Mike saying something? I don't um, think so. Only, well, the, more or less, no. The, the dream, see, Cooper's dream, Bob says something about Mike, I think. Okay, good Good answer. Good answer. Then but yeah, I, I take your point. I take your point mm. uh, as far as it applies to Janie and uh, Diane, I guess. But you, do you make anything of it? Yeah, I don't think it's. I don't think they're related. 
interesting. Do I don't have, that... but I don't have any good reason for that. Okay, yeah, I was gonna ask. Do you think that there's a reason that she would say that and it not, it not be the case? Yeah, John had... Thorne. I feel builds a lot off of that, which is interesting more yes, than I yeah. would honestly. I I don't, yeah. I don't. When I listed off all the things Diane was, it, it, even knowing John's theory, <laughs> it didn't really occur to me to say Janie E because they feel mm, kind of different. But I mean, so to her and cooper still i connect them so i don't know yeah i i thought it through once and it made it connected but or or maybe somebody thought it through on my behalf and connected it for me but i can't remember but it just is <laughs> but something like it, there was some logical pieces that didn't make they, it made it very very plausible that There's she, a was name kinda, she was kind of pulling this out of her ass like last second sort of like uh oh okay yeah like it was kind of strategic yeah she's my half sister yeah <laughs> interesting okay yeah. that i never really thought about that that it might not be uh, that she might be lying mm. or probably telling a story that is not true say yeah um how many meanings are there for the phrase the return that you could think of on the spot so season three is also known as the return. What is that phrase referring to? Can you think of five or more? It's okay. Let's see. Cooper's <laughs> return to Twin Peaks. Our return to the you know Twin Peaks, the show. Um, hmm. I would have thought there were a ton, but now I'm not really. Nothing, none, not others aren't coming to mind. I mean, those two are kind of rich enough that I almost feel like I don't need more. I mean, there's an ironic sense because we're not really returning to the Twin Peaks we knew before. It's it's quite different. Um, I like the title. I mean, I know it was a Showtime thing that they didn't really choose, but I I. It was like a phase of like two or three months where it was like, you know, um, um, Sabrina Sutherland put out a statement or something like, you know, this was CBS's or Showtime's title. We're now referring to it as Twin Peaks season three or something. It's like, OK, everybody stop using the return. And then uh, it was like after a few months, I was like, ah, the return kind of works. And now I use it. Uh, OK, all the I time, didn't know that. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think she said, like, don't use it. But it was like, you know, this isn't official. This is not the Lynch Frost way of call of referring to it. And we were all kind of like, oh, huh. Okay. Well, I guess it's not the return. And then it was like, eh, it's kind of the return. <laughs> is um is Cooper programmed by the fireman? Uh is he just a good teammate? Is he coached by the fireman? None of the above. If he's programmed, is he some sort of tope? Tulpa, like that could be turned on and off. Uh, are, are all these questions stupid? Any thoughts? Um, I was gonna say yes to all of them, and then you said, Are they all stupid? <laughs> sure, why not? I'll throw that in too. Yes to all of them. No. Um, yeah, I mean, th it's funny with the Cooper stuff, it's like I kind of glide over it a little bit where it's like, uh, this sort of mechanistic plot to find Judy or whatever the hell they're doing. Um, I wouldn't say it doesn't 
interest me, but I I don't quite make heads or tails of it, and it seems a little bit of a sideshow or MacGuffin yeah. for whatever else is going on in terms of identity and your passage of time and all this other stuff. Um, it'd be fun to kind of, I, I probably, before I create the videos, I'll, I'll go, you know, in the, <laughs> not that I have a ton of time, but if, <laughs> if I'm going to stick to my timetable, but you know, in the hours before I, I do it, um, I, I would I'd probably do some deep dives if I can find them on forums and stuff. Um, are you getting my connection? Okay. Cause it's, yeah. Okay, yes. Good. Um, and read about what people, you know, if people have interesting reads of like this whole Judy mission that he's on and the stuff that the John, the fireman says to him at the beginning of the return, because uh, it does it, 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 to me, I don't, the, do you remember, have you read some of the, um, some of these essays on like the return, like there's one, where it's like Cooper has is activating Laura slash Carrie as like uh, a the bomb. Canary. Yeah, she's like the bomb that's gonna blow up Judy and the Cage universe and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And then there's like um, that that one to me is one of the flatter ones. It it doesn't really resonate with <clears throat> with what I see. Like I don't. I don't get the point of it. Like we already had Bob. Bob was the big evil. Like, oh no, we got a bigger evil. Like that's kind of a lame way to uh, think of Judy for me. Um, I'm more interested in what I've talked about with John Thorne is like the idea of of her as some kind of representation of trauma or denial or whatever, like some, some kind of manifestation of something. But um, there's another one I find kind of interesting. I've, I've gone off on a little bit of a side tangent here, but there's another one I find kind of interesting, which is like Cooper is actually Mike and Mike is like a murderer. And this is all his small and drive esque rationalization of it. Um, mm. I don't like it, it, it. I don't, I mean, I, I like the, I like it's sort of thematic resonance. I don't like treat it as like, I don't buy it to the extent that I would like, you know, buy any, anything about a uh, uh, Cooper's story in that way. But um it, it like to me that one at least communicates something emotionally. Whereas like Lara is the cage is the bomb in the Judy cage universe. It's just kind of like, okay, <laughs> I don't know what, what does that leave me like on a psychological character level? Not much. I don't hmm. know. Yeah. I suppose you're right. Um, artificial intelligence, broadly speaking, is it's 2023 it's an interesting topic um what do you think a strong early ai interpretation of twin peaks would include if you had to predict the artificial the first really good coherent artificial intelligence analysis or interpretation of twin peaks anything popping to mind I think it would, it would probably resemble like a you know a, a cultural critic writing in like April 1990. You know, hmm. Look at this wacky, strange thing with coffee and uh, the vibes, and there it is. That's twenty. Uh, like a chat, like a chat GPT. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think it. Yeah. I don't think it would penetrate much deeper than that. 
a chat GPT or some kind of like visual thing, it would, it would just, it would sort of catch on to those basic motifs. I think AI at this point in its development, and I don't know how or where it goes from here. Um, it seems like it almost kind of reflects our most our most glib tendencies back at us. So I guess the most positive case for for uh, AI is like uh, encourage it like as a as a mirror showing us our own capacity mm. for being shallow <laughs> and challenge us to come up with something better. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know much about it, but I I heard that it's like a lot of it is like something called like large language programming or something. Mm -hmm where mostly it's it's mostly it's functioning based on like an analysis of lang language modeling or, or like language uh, patterns and predictions. And I think it'd be interesting if AI shifts away from language into other elements of communication. Like mm -hmm. if it wasn't just language based, if it was like, I don't know, intuition based or, so, or something. I don't know, that's just random, but like future iterations of AI might be yeah, interesting. Cause, and I just think of David Lynch when I say that, because he's, he's kind of notoriously has described himself as like not much of a language guy, or maybe that's like not yeah. his good language. Isn't like his optimal mode. Yeah. And AI right now is very much, I think like language driven. So it'd be interesting to see if it was driven by something else, what that would result in. Not really sure. I'm only I only thought of this because you were asking recently about uh, uh apparently there's a an AI sort of movie clip that reinterpreted uh I forget what it was. It was they did Lord of the Rings as a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, pretty nutty. Um and I, I I literally don't understand like how it works. Like I, I truly in my conception of it, like somebody like speaks into a tin can and they're like, make a Wes Anderson Lord of the Rings. And like a person is on the other end pretending <laughs> that they're a computer and like, I will do this. And then just does it as a person would do it. Like, I don't understand where the computer enters into it really, to be honest. Um, yeah. I think it, it seems think like it's a lot of programming. It's massive programming. Like freaking yeah, yeah. out that like this is doing it by itself, but it's like, is it? I don't know. Yeah, it's massive programming. Um, but it, it is interesting that I, I believe we already, like you could have uh, like a virtual friend that can sort of shape shift like as you're hanging out <laughs> or as you're communicating, you know, could become... I don't know. Theoretically, you can have a friend that becomes all cast members mm. of, Twi of Twin Peaks. <laughs> you know, during well, one like, little four-way four to the uh, to the to the park. You go it's hang, like the um, the the Joy character in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, basically. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> yeah, there's. A, I th I feel like there's two ways of looking at AI. One is the sort of nightmare apocalypse scenario that uh, somehow it achieves like self-awareness and basically supplants humanity um, and, and, you know, <laughs> becomes this, whatever that is. The other way to look at it, the other, if you're going to tell a story about it or something is like the impact it has on people, almost like a Rorschach test where it's like, 
the AI is just do, blindly doing its thing and people kind of interpret it a certain way or do whatever. And it's, it's all really them reflecting back on themselves based on mm. this, uh, this external, you know, encounter or whatever. Yeah. And like I, the Janie, the... like the Janie E stuff. It's, it's <laughs> right. a dark world. Yeah. Hey, Dougie is the what? AI. So exactly. Right <laughs> um, I love, I love the delivery man from, uh, the Mitchum brothers delivery man, like the head guy who brings the gym. Yeah, set yeah. But that's neither here nor there. Um, there was somebody on some, on a, I think it was the, what was it? Fire talk with me. One of many, many, many mm. peaks podcasts over the years where they never covered the season two finale until right before the return. So it took like three years and then they're like, here we are, we're finally back. <laughs> and then they covered all of season three and then they never uh, covered the season three finale. They did it again. And this time, of course, they never came back. <laughs> so anyways, they, yeah. One of the hosts like knew that actor and was like, Oh, he's great. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, okay. That's all I remember yeah, about. That guy's about cool. His, his name is like, uh, 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 I wrote it down. He has the coolest name. This Israeli guy um the uh so sarah palmer bites some guy's neck off or whatever there's there's no blood on her chin um diane gets shot in a chair disappears yeah there's no blood on the chair there's like a lot of stuff that happens with no blood kind of weird and then when you do see blood it's like very... There's no blood. There's no blood in this Sam and Tracy. You know when they get like the whole forensics, they uh -huh. don't find any blood. <laughs> it, really? Yeah, I think that oh, I believe wow. that's you know aside from the actual yeah bro broken heads. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's all but, I remember. Tammy that. says like there's nothing. There's like no trace. They sucked the blood out or something. Yeah. That's it's funny how Lynch's like head injuries than this. It's just like he's just like cleanly slices a portion of the head like it goes through the eye and the eye is like intact like it's like yeah. what is this this is so weird sarah's watching uh, a boxing match on a big loop mm -hmm. obviously uh that's really cool and really weird in my opinion you can you explain that scene to me there's a great uh blue rose um magazine article on that that's talking about the actual fight and like gives uh, all this context for it and i don't think lynch was using it for that i think he just found some footage and grabbed it and threw it in just sort of like he googled old school hip-hop beats and literally put in the first song he found <laughs> onto the soundtrack mm. but um yeah so that's interesting um i mean i did i it's not a particularly you know, original insight, but I think it just has something to do with the cyclical, you know, the cycle she's stuck in basically where uh, it's, it's just a further kind of um, manifestation of that. Just the endless kind of repetition, getting up, getting her drink, pouring the bloody Mary, smoking her 20,000th cigarette as the fight goes on and on. There's obviously mm. something, mm going on in terms of violence that she's watching like the first scene it's this nature documentary with the leopards or whatever ripping apart the the wildebeest or whatever it is um i do love the correspondence i can't remember who originally 
brought this idea up, but the correspondence between Sarah sitting there watching this violence in the box right at the same time, supposedly or possibly that Judy is smashing through the box at the, the kids in New York, um, you know, for their, or, or experiment, <laughs> you know, who knows, yeah. who knows what that is. Um, that's interesting. I think I've been watching the series again recently, like actually, you know, not just fragments of scenes for stuff I'm working on, but actually like episode by episode. And uh, it's interesting, like it does feel like they really are. And I think, again, this is probably more Mark Frost. Like there really is a, a coherent thread through the whole series of like Sarah experiment, Judy jumping man. Like there's something concrete going on there, you know? And it's funny, like, uh, you, you know, when you hear that interview I did with Martha Nockinson, like she hates the idea that the little girl is Sarah. Um, mm. I kind of get it, but it doesn't really bother me that much. And I think, I think, uh, you know, some of the stuff Frost says, you're like, okay, this is definitely just you saying this, like, this isn't something mm. Lynch is buying, but the way he describes the Sarah thing is like, he's almost like asserting like this was Lynch and I, this wasn't just me, you know? Like the way he talks about, oh, we wanted you to figure out who it was and this and that. It's like, it seems to me like, even though Lynch presents it pretty ambiguously in the context of the show itself, that they discussed that this was Sarah in the writing process. Yeah. Seems like it. And I, I kind of like that idea. It gives, I, it, it gives it some... Now, I don't know what it says in terms of... um sarah and judy and all that like uh, the final dossier version of it isn't quite satisfying for me of like just these two demons inhabited these two parents of this girl who was a goddess sent down from outer space or whatever um it does it doesn't particularly add anything in that sense but i like the idea that sarah has um Uh, there's a spirit that corresponds to whatever is going on in Sarah's psyche. Put it that mm. way. Thank you. That's interesting. I believe, um, and I, I don't want to get into this now, but I'm pretty sure you were part of an episode of some show that got into Sarah Palmer at great length. Is that correct? Yeah, that was cream corn in the universe. Yeah, actually. man. That, that was, was my episode of that. That was that was super cool. That was really great. But that I, was but my I, he he suggested a couple characters, and I was hmm. like, yeah, that's interesting. But to tell you the truth, Diane and Sarah are the ones that I'm most interested. in. He had somebody mm -hmm. else coming on for Diane, um, and had had somebody come on to discuss Sarah, but specifically the Judy aspect of it. Yeah. And so we we touched on that again, but it was sort of more Sarah holistically. If I, if I could watch, if I could catch one episode, one discussion of one character anywhere, and I've never seen it, it would be uh, um, Mrs. Tremont slash Chalfant. That's, that's the one character I would really just love to hear people yeah. get into. Yeah, I feel like I've heard more sorry, about, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, mm -hmm. I feel like more people have talked about the grandson than her. Yeah, I, I'm, she's intriguing to me. Yeah. Um, 
I'm gonna have to go in a little bit and but but I have a fair amount of questions. Can we do 30 second rounds? Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> I'll stick who, to the clock this time. Who faces more complications in Twin Peaks? The characters or us, the viewers? Um us, I guess, because we're collectively, you know, we're we're getting all of their difficulties. Um collectively whereas they only have their own individual ones maybe <laughs> if um if mike slash gerard if 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 his tattoo was on a different part of his body and he had to remove it would anything be different like is it the fact that it's an arm is that essential or is that just not essential i mean i think the idea is the removal of a limb but that's the most kind of logical yeah. way to go with it i think um well, maybe, maybe arm, i am the i am the foot or i am the hand <laughs> doesn't have the same <laughs> yeah i won't go any further with that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um that gum you like is is going to come back in style is there are there like canonical interpretations of that line you've been around a lot longer than i have is that, that just does that just mean like the stuff you like to chew on that's a, that, that's kind of how i always took gum what that line means is that eventually a piece of chewing gum is going to be recast as me <laughs> on top of a tree. That's all I got for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always thought it was like stuff to chew on, you know, but I think there's, are there, are there any like classic or sort of canonical interpretations of any large or small element of this show that, that you were drawn to that you lived with that you, have abandoned or that you were don't don't really buy but still like any of those things oh uh, well, i think I know that's kind of a wide open question maybe too wide open but. the owl cave ring being something that just transports you to the lodge i never found that interesting and i feel like the return leaned into that pretty heavily so that was like a little bit of a disappointment for me because it's like to me the most interesting thing in firewalk with me is how the ring relates to knowledge and power and things like that. And they didn't really play with that much in the return. It was more like, Hey, put this on your finger and now you're in the red room. <laughs> Do you think uh, the red room, speaking of the red room, is the red room Cooper's subconscious? Is it something else? Um, I think at this point they've done too much with it to to just have it be Cooper's subconscious, unless all of Twin Peaks is somehow his, you know, psychic playground. Um, too many different people have had experiences or encounters there. I like the idea that that's his particular manifestation of of the underworld of Twin Peaks, but uh, I don't think it's totally plausible in narrative terms at this point. Does it? Do you think it looks and feels a certain way because of him, or does it just look? Is that a place that looks and feels a certain way regardless of who the inhabitants are or who the visitors are? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I like the idea that it would be because of him, but I, I don't think it. <laughs> I don't really buy it at this point. It's there's too much other stuff suggesting it's its own space. So it it is its own. You 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 said you think it's its own thing. Yeah, I so, mean, I think that's that's what we're. I think that's yeah. 
the emphasis of the show. Yeah, that it has its own independent uh, existence to the extent that anything in Twin Peaks, maybe maybe all of it's Cooper's dream or whatever. But, you know, if it's not, then I don't think the Red Room is particularly so. Um, how does who gets to be a doppelganger or, or and who doesn't? I guess theoretically everybody would have a doppelganger, but we only see certain ones. I do find it strange that the spirits have the doppelgangers. Um, that, if I had to guess, I would say that's one of those things Lynch has never quite figured out or had anyone else figure out. It just felt right to him, so he did it. <laughs> Here's the contacts, put them in, you know, Michael J. Anderson, and uh, hmm. we'll go from there. <laughs> um. The uh, uh, you know, Jimmy Scott is singing a song, and it's a nice song. Is is he playing Jimmy Scott, or is he some character? Um, a little bit of both, kind of like Julie Cruz, I think. He sings, "I will see you. <laughs> you will see me." Um, who are the pronouns there? Like, who's the I and the you and the me, in your opinion? Let's see. I mean, it just feels, honestly, it's not that interesting of an answer, but it, it feels like the spirits and, you know, Cooper in this particular case communicating there. I, I don't know that there's it would be fun to be like ah that's Laura singing through him or something <laughs> but I probably not yeah doesn't I, doesn't need to be for for it to work yeah and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be clever or like <laughs> <laughs> we can't always be sometimes we have to just I mean what is what's what's the uh, phrase from Twin Peaks I mean it like it is like it yeah, sounds yeah yeah I'm speaking it's... plainly. And without, yes. uh, what's that? What's that from? I'm speaking plain. Oh, that's Mulholland Drive, right? The cowboy. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I mean it like it is. I'm speaking plainly, and meanwhile, it's like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? <laughs> it's so taunting. It's great. Yes. <laughs> um. Uh. Uh. Did you know that Wyndham Earl takes Annie into the Grove on Easter? Did you ever hear about that? I feel like, yeah, because I've been, I looked a lot at the dates of stuff that things happened on. So, yeah, yeah, that would make sense, I guess. Yeah, March 28th, 1989. I would assume that's just like just happenstance coincidence like there's no i don't know well they write a lot about like, from the, the, the passion play and stuff in um the access guide book mm. like they do a they make a very they make a big deal out of that like the bookhouse boys do a passion play and this and that and it's like very random so it seems like they might have actually realized at a certain point that like they would set this on easter um because of that but i'm not sure yeah 
Easter is always interesting because you get the the uh, dead, but yet I live type thing. And it's not about the bunny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and there are some bunnies on the TV in that uh that I think it's the boxing scene, which is. And I what think, do you mean? There's bunnies on the TV. Yeah, you know how Sarah's watching TV. Mm-hmm. There's like two bunnies there on the TV stand. And, oh really? I never yeah, noticed and it, that. And there's like a big bowl of what I have to. There's like a big gold bowl of cream corn next to her. And it's just interesting. <laughs> um, um, maybe we'll close it out with. Yeah. What have you learned from David Lynch and Mark Frost <laughs> as a as a creative person, as a writer? as any any way you want to take it maybe that's not a fair question no i mean it is um i think i learned the importance and the power of storytelling in a context where you don't necessarily know the story you're telling. Like you're following a thread rather than um, like charting it out ahead of time. Hmm. Neat. Oh, I have to ask one more question. Sorry. Um, do you think do you think Garland Briggs was born in Italy? Because uh... he talks about some big palazzo where where he was in fact born and raised. I'm trying. I'm doing the chronology here. I'm thinking, uh, you know what? His dad was a uh, a soldier in Italy in 1944 when they were invading taken over 43 44 met an italian woman married her came back to the u.s with garland so there you go <laughs> <laughs> the timing that the the uh the years work out yeah i think i think, he, I think deep down i think deep down in his in his deepest in his deepest vision yeah. He was born he, he in the. To, he wants the, to be Italian. He was born in the Allied occupied palace of <laughs> Mussolini. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> um, I actually have one question, one minute or less. From the jump from season one to two, from season two to Firewalk with Me, and then from the movie to season three, uh, what were the key, in your opinion, what were some of the steps forward that were made during each of those jumps or, or artistically or any other way innovations really whatever you want to say season one to season two it's it's the going from something that was sort of like this quick fast lightning in a bottle you know um phenomenon 
to something that is going to just keep going deeper. And uh, obviously that, you know, didn't work so well with uh, the ratings, but in terms of its artistic uh, quality, I think that's a crucial moment. Season two to fire walk with me. Um, there's a shift from like a sort of a removal and a distance to an absolute immersion. Uh, I mean, visually. So like, let's think of some of the wide shots in the finale and then you open Firewalk with me, like way zoomed in on TV static. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a, a sense in the, in the finale of like this sort of wrathful God <laughs> raining down his plagues upon Twin Peaks, you know, um, which is funny because obviously in that context, the, the wrathful God is David Lynch, but actually the only scenes out at least outside of the black lodge, the only scenes that he added were it's like the happy scene of the diner, like the writers wrote all the negative stuff happening to everybody, <laughs> but it, it still feels like David Lynch, like sending a meteor shower on, on twin peaks. Um, and then in firewalk with me though, it's, it's pure empathy, you know, and even in that first half hour where we're a little more distance with, chet and stanley there's like a free flowing or sam stanley there's a free flowing quality to it um, like a looseness in the camera work and stuff that uh you already feel like you're getting a little more immersed in something from Firewalk with me to the return it's more um you're going from i think it's sort of similar like a backwards movement like from season two to Firewalk with me, you know, where you're you're going from more distance to up close. I think you're getting some distance again in a more sort of Apollonian way, like you're sort of looking down coolly upon all of this, uh, all of this stuff happening from a position where you had been totally inside of it with with Firewalk with me. So that's my impression of all of those junctures. Thanks, Joel. Um, have- have you uh have you written a book accidentally without knowing it? Yeah, I've probably written several. Several books, several movies, and several um um albums. I don't know. <laughs> of non of spoken word albums. <laughs> How do you feel when I ask that question? Um, it makes me think of the Pauline Kale quote where somebody asked her, have you, why, you know, why haven't you written your autobiography? And she said, Oh, I have, you know, mm. it's like, what am I going to write? Well, I've, I've written my books, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Would you see any value in like collating it like into an actual um, bounded thing? Finan- or? Financially, maybe. <laughs> but um in terms of presentation i don't know it doesn't it seems like if i was to write a book at some point it would be something new it would be hard to um it'd be it'd be hard to see my way toward putting the effort toward like making a book of stuff that i had written already but i don't know i mean people have done that so yeah self-printed or whatever i don't know yeah it could be interesting but it doesn't seem very necessary to me at least at this point yeah i understand um 
the I don't know if I have to put it if I do something with this and I'm sure I'm going to publish it somewhere. We had to give it a title. Do you have any ideas? Usually I figure that out after I like write write up the descriptions. Right? You know, I try to like timestamp it, but I don't know about a four hour one. I don't know, I don't know what the timestamps <laughs> would be. Is, do you have any titles coming to mind? Joel and Anthony's excellent adventure. No, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can we keep in touch? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, this was fun. I hope so. Yeah. Um, I think it's past my bedtime, but I don't really care. <laughs> I just you, drank a, I drank a pot of coffee. So are you in the Midwest? No, I'm in New Jersey. Oh, okay. Same time zone as me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. New Hampshire. Sweet. Yeah. Yep. Maybe we'll catch up sometime. The two news or two of many news. Yeah, really. <laughs> Oh, do you know my uh, my trivia question? Who is Dale Doolittle? Dale Doolittle, <laughs> is it? I tried. Uh, to, I tried to create. The doc- a, a, is that the doctor's first name? Or no, no. I'll give you a hint. Is it to do with the colonel in the army or whatever? Uh, not bad, not bad. Uh, the hint is Guam. That's hint yeah, number one, okay. Guam. And hint number two is Pete. Pete yeah, Martel. so that's the story he tells. Very good. About, yeah. um, when he's opening the mystery box, right? Very good. Yeah, I, yeah. So when he tells that story, in my mind, I was thinking <laughs> he was referring to the officer, Doolittle, who I can't remember who he was, Air Force or what. Hmm. But I don't think so. I think he's referring to two other enlisted which also I got to say, yeah, twins. I got to say, <laughs> or Jack Nance, um, the implication is that in 1989, Pete's like 65 years old. That man was like 43. <laughs> yeah. But he, he had aged quite a bit in the 80s yeah. from the eraser well, he, head. Yeah, he lived a couple lives, I think. He lived events. many, many lives. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> uh, all right, man. Um, the scary part is that we, we could probably... We could probably just ramble for <laughs> just keep going with twice the list. As long. Yeah, with the stupid lists. But it's fun though. It is, it's yeah. You know, you think anybody else would ever want to join in for the speed round stuff? I don't know. I mean, did have you done it with other people? No. No. Man. You can throw it out as like a possibility and like give them the yeah. option of saying no, I guess. But yeah, I I enjoy it. I enjoy the challenge. Although sometimes tonight I it sort of detoured off the speed. <laughs> yeah, it happens. Um, it does. It is the <laughs> I can't stop. Spe- you just said speed, and it made me think of the waiter. Um, is, is he so slow because it's the waiting room? <laughs> and he's a is he a waiter because it's the waiting room? Are these all just silly puns and nothing else i mean i would never put it past david lynch to be punning <laughs> about something so yeah maybe and what does meanwhile mean it's maybe that's the wrong phrasing of my question i'll see you again in 25 years hmm. meanwhile
Dios, mi vida es muy 